This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Doing what we can every day, three hours a day, to give you the information, the tools you need to live a healthier, happier life. Top of the morning to you. Happy Tuesday. And today, by the way, is Get Ready Day. This is You prepare for the big disaster. Whether it's a pandemic, illness, infectious diseases, natural disasters, whatever crisis you have, today's the day to get ready. I'd get a generator, some gasoline maybe. Nice dancing, by the way. Thank you. Feeling pretty good today. Holy cow. It seems like every day is the day to be ready. If you live in New York or Boston, there's going to be a bombing or a knifing in Minnesota. What's happening to the world? We will uh, be talking today um, more about uh, Get Ready Day, as well as just the latest news. I have several lists of things that New Yorkers are more afraid of than ISIS. So we get to that later on. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, acts of defiance. Like, they're not going to scare me. They're not going to make me have fear. But these other things I'm more afraid of, so they're (laughs) kind of funny. Yeah, the bacteria. Should I wash my hands or not? That might be one. Should you use the antibacterial soap that the FDA says is dangerous? Yeah, I wouldn't. Or not. not or, and I just heard of somebody found a rat head in their chicken. Nice. I'd be more afraid of that. Yeah. Lawsuit. Major food chain. We will uh, get to all those fun stories. Plus, hour number two, I just have to tease it. Mm. Bat lickers. Bat lickers. Yeah, I like the headline on that one. People that lick bats. It is a thing. People do this, apparently. Sounds like another movie. <laughs> Bat liquor. <laughs> oh, that is great. Uh, we'll get to all of that fun. Plus, today we'll be discussing this idea of why young Americans are turned off of politics. I don't understand it. Hmm. It's, it's, could, a, it's such a positive place to be, politics. You got your Trump. You got your Clinton. It seems like the youth would be eating this up. Apparently not. In fact, why millennials may never have a president of their own. From their own generation. Simply, they're so turned off. Well, they, they have Trump and Clinton. And apparently, according to FEC officials, there are 1,900 other people that are running for office also. Yeah. For president. So don't tell me you don't have a choice. There's all kinds of choices. We'll talk about that, too. I guess that's the big problem, though. It, maybe none of them are real choices. Well. Hmm. So uh, why the millennials are turning away from politics, we'll be getting into that in deep, plus other fun headlines and other information. But first, Sadie Nielsen with the headlines. Sadie? The New York City bombing suspect has been charged with five accounts of attempted murder of a law enforcement officer. Ahmed Khan-Rahami, 28, was apprehended Monday morning following a shootout with cops in Linden, New Jersey, in which he reportedly injured multiple officers. Rahami is believed to be responsible for explosive devices planted in both New York and New Jersey, only one of which exploded in Manhattan on Saturday night, injuring 29 people. It is expected to take several days for the FBI to formally charge him for the bombings. 
George H.W. Bush may have made up his mind about who will get his vote come November. Kathleen Townsend saw the former Republican president on Monday and was told he would vote for the Democratic presidential nominee, Hillary Clinton. The Bush family has remained largely quiet on the subject of the 2016 elections. However, Bush did say he would not endorse Trump and neither would his former son, uh, Republican President George W. Bush. During a speech in Florida on Monday, Donald Trump lamented the fact that the suspect in bombings across New Jersey and New York City over the weekend, captured this morning after a shootout with the police, is receiving amazing medical attention and has the right to an outstanding lawyer. Trump said that while it was a good thing authorities caught this evil thug, the bad part is now we will give him amazing hospitalization. And finally, yes, a California vlogger who specializes in creatively destroying the latest tech set his sights on the iPhone 7 with a bizarre test involving Coca-Cola and freezing. What? So he decided that he was going to put an iPhone 7 in Coke, freeze it for 17 hours and take it out and see what happened. And he took it out of the Coke and it turns out that the iPhone still works. Wow. Uh, it has, it's Coke proof. It, it had a low battery, but... Uh, and <laughs> the hearing on it was not as clear as it was before, he said. Oh, you couldn't hear. Yes. It wasn't as clear. But he said it still was working. So apparently the water-resistant function is really working on the iPhone 7. Well, water-resistant and Coke-resistant, I think those are different things. Yeah, that's true. But Coke is, does have water in it. So. Yeah, it does have some water in it. There you go. Well done, Sadie. Man, who just wakes up and says, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm, I will put the iPhone 7 in... A bag, I guess, full of um, Coca-Cola product for 17 hours exactly. Jim Halpert from The Office. Yes. That was Jell-O, though, wasn't it? And a stapler. Yeah. little different. Did you hear about the Chinese billionaire son who decided that he was going to buy seven iPhone – no, eight iPhone 7s for his dog? Sounds like the beginning of a joke. No. I wish. It I mean, it is a joke. The guy bought all these iPhones for his dog. Each iPhone costs about $1,000 in China, iPhone 7s. Eight of them. One dog. Eight iPhones. Does that seem like a little excessive to you? What do you do? What's happening to this world for crying out loud? That's why we need to get ready. It's get ready day. Get ready. You never know. Have some extra food on supply. Depending where you live in the country, you'll have guns and ammo. Like if you live in the inner city, if you have guns and ammo, that's a big thing in the West. Do you have any dehydrated chicken or potatoes, anything like that? Yeah, we have a bunch of canned stuff. But do you have enough? I don't think you can ever have enough dehydrated chicken. Well, right. It's so hard to keep them in the back without giving them water. They get so irritated. Once they're dehydrated, they just often die on you. Um, we, this, uh, this is a crazy deal. George Herbert Walker Bush may be voting for Hillary Clinton. Yeah, I, it, it seems a little odd. You have a woman who's a former lieutenant governor of, I believe, Maryland. Yeah. She took uh, – By the way, her last name – Kathleen Kennedy Townsend. Well, there's that. No there, relation. The, the, I, I was trying to think, is it the Kennedy part or are you trying to, you know. Just Kathleen Kennedy Townsend. Townsend thing? She's a distant cousin. <laughs> okay. So she takes a picture with him and then posts it saying, he told me. 
He told me he's voting for Hillary. Yeah. But it makes sense because the Bushes and the Clintons are part of the dynasty. They're part of the hidden government that runs the, the shadow government, the shadow government that wow. runs the United States. Didn't know it was going to turn to that kind of a show. Yeah. That would be a great TV show, like Dynasty, the old Dynasty show, but with the Bushes. Yeah. The Bushes could be the rich ones from Texas, like uh, the Ewings. Hmm. The Clintons could be the rich ones from Arkansas through Illinois for Hillary, through Arkansas to New York, to D.C., then to New York, then back to D.C. That was a longer trip. <laughs> so... What do you think? I mean, does I guess Donald's lost her, George Herbert Walker Bush's vote? Sorry, you were a jerk to my son. Yeah, there's probably a lot of that. Just and you might look at it; he's not the a, a, you know a traditional Republican candidate. No, so yeah, people go the other direction. Many have. So there's all of this hullabaloo now between um, the two candidates about. What's going on with the bombings? Who jumped first? Who's really most likely to succeed uh, in taking down ISIS? Clinton uh, is is totally jumping on Trump's case about kind of how he jumped the gun a little bit yesterday. Maybe spoke too soon. A lot of people are saying you got to have more control. Yeah. He went straight to it's a bomb. Rather than waiting for the police to decide whether it was that or did a gas line blow up, because at that point they had no idea. No idea. It was just an explosion. Yeah. He called it a bomb. Bomb. And so. But then she also mentioned bomb on the uh, her plane when she had a press conference there, too. So then there's a question of who said it first and who was jumping, you know, who was jumping to conclusions first. And it, it just kind of gets tiring. So Hillary's <laughs> teaching us that, you know, you got to be careful not to turn. The war in terror, on terror, into a war against Islam. The kinds of rhetoric and language that Mr. Trump has used is giving aid and comfort to our adversaries. A lot of the rhetoric we've heard from Donald Trump has been seized on by terrorists, in particular ISIS, uh, because they are looking to make this into a war against Islam. Rather than a war against jihadists, violent terrorists, people who number in the maybe tens of thousands, not the tens of millions, they want to use that to recruit more fighters to their cause by turning it into a religious conflict. Donald, so Donald is now, according to Secretary Clinton, giving aid and comfort to ISIS. He's helping ISIS's case against the United States because he keeps dismissing or putting down or using, I guess, the word, I, I guess he's using radical Islam is what he keeps saying. And she's saying, don't frame it about Islam, just extremists, mm-hmm. radicals. And Donald's like, if you can't name your enemy, you can't fight him. Now, this has been going on for years. Yes. This is not a, a new argument. Play, uh, what is it here, clip five. We also know from the former head of our counterterrorism center, Matt Olson, uh, that the kinds of rhetoric and language that Mr. Trump has used is giving aid and comfort to our adversaries. 
she's using aid and comfort. Yeah, for a specific reason, the uh, the, the the U.S. law for treason. It says whoever owing allegiance to the United States levies war against them or adheres to enemies giving them aid and comfort within the U.S. or elsewhere is guilty of treason. So she's implying he's committing treason. He's a, yeah. What do you think? I think it's, it's that too far. It's a bridge too far. Okay, just check. He's not going to take this lying down. Uh, Donald's pretty much convinced that Hillary caused the whole problem. Anyone who cannot condemn the hatred. The oppression and violence of radical Islam lacks the moral clarity to serve as our president. Just remember, doing it for many, many years, and now she's saying what she's going to do. She very much caused the problem when you think about it. Her weakness, her ineffectiveness caused the problem, and now she wants to be president. I don't think so. I would say causing the international terrorism problem is worse than than being a traitor. But did she cause it? Oh, according to Mr. Trump, absolutely. So he has the better accusation. Yeah. Okay. By far. <laughs> she caused terrorism globally. He just wants to, you know, help aid and comfort ISIS. I do find the logic interesting that she's caused every problem in the Middle East for the last decade. It's, yeah. it's her fault. Well, don't forget, her husband was president, too. So back then, she was causing other problems, too. So all of her problem causing did not start just when she, she, she was, was secretary. Bl- well, right. She's been blamed for things so it's like the last 20 years, almost. How do you make that accusation? Work? I don't know. I, I don't know. that. You, Does the Secretary of State, can they fly into a country, tell them what to do, and then the country just stops? Does oh, that yeah. happen before? That's it. You just, all you do. So she did the job wrong. She, even, if you just, even if you just send them an email, okay. you, you'll, they'll do whatever you say because you're the secretary. Do you actually have to bring the sabers to rattle no. in, no. Their, in the, the, the opposing country's presence just to get them? Or no. can you, as an email, enough? You could send uh, a meme. Oh, with sabers, okay. uh, you could send you know a video about saber rattling. Okay, many many ways to rattle just, one saber. Trump has this. It seems like he has this grandiose idea of the power of the Secretary of State, other than a chief diplomat. See, this I think is the problem because this might be why we're losing millennials who could care less about the political <laughs> process because of all this extreme rhetoric. It's 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 Hillary Clinton's fault that we have ISIS. Well, I mean, and anybody that listens to conservative radio would say, well, duh. Yeah. Obama, who we don't even know if he's really an American now. No, we know. Trump said. And you could oh. tell he really meant it. Yeah. yeah. He wasn't just doing it so that they didn't bring it up in the, in the uh, debates. This is crazy. He had to explain it there. He could just say, I've already answered that question. And Hillary obviously caused it because she was with Mr. Obama. <sighs> And Donald, obviously, aiding and abetting. And Donald's really upset. We won't have time to listen to the clip about the fact that this guy is going to be able to go now to a nice hospital. He's going to get a lawyer. He's going to get a U.S. hospital that's going to fix him up. He's going to get a, 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 a like a, a trial by jury, probably. Yeah. I mean, he's going to get the rights because he's actually a citizen of this country. 
and he broke the law, and so the law is going to be followed. And you know, but if we had a wall, this wouldn't happen. No, it came from Afghanistan. So, well, no, but I'm just saying the wall could also not just be on the Mexican border; it could oh. be on the Afghanistan-American border. Okay. Oh. We you know just I mean? wall the whole country off. Oh, but then he got in not even through a wall. Like, he just landed here. So we need a dome. And he actually had citizenship. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Because the wall won't help there. Hmm. Unless you wall off, like, the citizenship department <laughs> at state. What do you do? So apparently, folks, this may be one of the reasons why the young Americans, the millennials, are turned off to politics. Come on. Are we ever going? This is why people are are bat lickers. Story we'll do next hour. I just can't quit thinking about it. If you can't get into politics and you're young in the in America, what do you do? You start chasing down bats in caves. We'll take a break. We'll be right back, folks. Why young Americans are turned off to politics. Welcome back, friends. You know, while considering candidates for any election, the question is this really who we have to choose from? Is this really what's left? Almost always seems to arise. Jennifer Lawless, co author of the book Running from Office Why Young Americans Are Turned Off to Politics, conducted a study, a study with four thousand high school students in and college students. And she discovered that uh, their interest in politics uh, kind of fading. Apparently, 89% of them said they wouldn't be interested in running for office. Nearly 90% of our youth w- would not be interested in running for office. And so she's here today to talk to us about her book, Running from Office. And uh, we're honored. She is a professor, a current professor of government and the director of Women in Politics Institute at American University. Dr. Jennifer Lawless, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. What's causing, I mean, every time we talk about Trump and Clinton and the extreme rhetoric that they're spewing, I get turned off by it. But what, what's causing the disdain for politics with our youth? Well, it's a lot of that. Basically, when Richard Fox and I conducted this national survey, we were interested in whether the dysfunction that has come to characterize Washington, the stalemate, the gridlock, the ad hominem attacks, the inability to get anything done, was taking a toll not only on public policy, but also on young people's attitudes toward running. And we found that it indeed was people who were interested, young people who were interested in solving problems or making their communities a better place, didn't think that running for and serving in elected office was a viable way to do so, because they have so few examples of success. And this was conducted in 2012, right in the heart and the heat of the presidential election between Barack Obama and Mitt Romney. So you can imagine that in today's political climate, Mm. young people are probably even more turned off. We've never seen a presidential election cycle as negative, as personal, and as attack-filled as this one. Because it used to be you you kind of wanted to work your way up, right? You wanted to be a civil servant. Some people did, and they were drawn to that idea of serving the country but also serving the greater good. Um, Apparently, those are no longer draws to the youth, or is it just specifically to politics? 
Well, the good news that we found was that one of the most important goals for high school and college students was making their community a better place, which means that in terms of general attitudes toward community service, toward working for nonprofit organizations, toward really investing in improving the world around them, we don't see a drop-off. We see a generation that's just as eager as those coming before them. The difference is that for their parents or for their grandparents, there were a slew of people for whom running for and serving in office really did seem like a noble profession. If you wanted to bring about change, that was the way you did it. And now... We've reached a point where their parents, their grandparents, the media, their teachers all look around and say, you know what, that would be a waste. You can do so much more. Hmm. And from our perspective, that's very troubling because we have more than 500,000 elective offices in this country. And someone is going to fill them. But if it's not the best and the brightest, you can imagine what we'll be left with. Oh, man. And because you saw with 17 candidates in the Republican Party, Yet Donald Trump is what emerged as the leader. And yet a lot of them, you know, I guess were decent, good leaders, good people. It's it's uh, it's it's I guess it's it's hopeful to think that they want to serve the community, but they just don't want to go near the lightning rod of politics. Right. And the thing that's really unfortunate about it is that. Most elected officials are doing a good job, they're doing the right thing, and because they're just doing their jobs, they're not newsworthy. So what winds up happening is the men behaving badly in Washington, D.C. get all of the coverage, and then that shapes people's perceptions of what it must be like. But the average state legislator, the average member of Congress, and certainly the average mayor, town council member, are really just good people trying to represent their communities. But until those kinds of people are profiled and are highlighted and are showcased, it's going to be the Donald Trumps of the world that really affect how people view the political system. Oh, I had no idea. 500,000 elected positions in the country. Right. That that means that about one out of every 600 adults is expected to serve in office. Unbelievable. And so when you when you look at the political system and the political world, is it is it the way the students really perceive it? Is it you that know, I dark? I tell you, I'm, so I'm teaching an election 2016 class this semester, and these are the political junkies who are in the class, and they wince when they look at the campaign ads from this election cycle. They themselves are not interested in running for office because they don't think that they have the traits and the thick skin required to endure what our presidential candidates are having to endure. And so I think two things are important. The first is, to remember that it's not just the presidency that's at stake and that the negative campaigns don't really characterize a lot of the other offices around the country, but also that when you pay more attention to politics and when you get more of a full view of what's actually going on, you're going to be more inclined to happen upon some good examples of people really working for their communities, working for their states, working for the country. And when people see examples of politicians behaving well and getting work done, they're more inspired. So it's this strange position that we're in because a cursory look at the electoral environment is completely consistent with what these students perceived in 2012. But when you dig a little deeper and you see more examples of politicians, you realize that there actually are a lot of good people out there. It's just that that initial reaction turns so many people off that they never go to that second step. So some of this really is just kind of the way the media mirrors and reflects 
just the dark side, the dirty side of politics. Yes, I would blame the media and the politicians. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, a, a wiener, an Anthony wiener it. keeps making right. the headlines for crying out loud. I, I didn't even know he was alive anymore. Right. I mean, so, yes, the media definitely have these bottom line concerns and voters and citizens have made it clear that they're interested in salacious details. Mm. And as a result, the media have an incentive to cover that kind of stuff. But it would be a lot easier for the media not to cover that stuff if on a daily basis there weren't people giving them fodder for commentary. Right. Uh, But, you know, I've got to say that even when you've got such low levels of congressional approval, such low levels of trust in government, in the last in the last congressional election cycle, almost every single incumbent who sought reelection was reelected. So. It's also kind of difficult to blame the politicians because the voters aren't holding right. them accountable for their behavior either. We've talked a lot on the show just about democracies demand an informed electorate. And, you know, the problem is our information comes from the media, which is so partisan and biased. But we we aren't – and it sounds like it's kind of a vicious cycle because the youth aren't interested in talking about it. I mean it, the parents don't even seem as interested. Are these numbers that you're seeing reflecting their parents as well? We think so. Um, when, you've, when Gallup has asked people over the course of the last 50 or 60 years – you know, what kinds of jobs would you want your children to pursue? And do you think that politics is a noble profession? We've seen those numbers go down, where parents now are more inclined to say that they would like their child to become a car salesman or a lobbyist than a member of Congress. (laughs) That's pretty damning. Totally. Um, But we also know that when parents talk to their children about politics, when teachers talk to their students about politics, and when friends and peers engage in any kind of political discussion, there's a greater interest in running for office. And it's not that those conversations are all positive and rosy and it's people sitting around singing Kumbaya, but it's when there's a more nuanced conversation, I think people, and young people in particular, are aware of the difficulties that our political system places on elected officials and the challenges. It's just that getting to the point where those conversations exist is more difficult now than it's been in the past because it's such a turnoff. When did this start? When did the slide start? It's hard to know, but when you look at the changes in public opinion among adults, and when you think about the kinds of political memories that our high school and college students told us were their first, it seems that it probably began in the era of Newt Gingrich and Bill Clinton. Mm. And in part, that's because partisan fighting and heightened polarization between the parties and a penchant for conflict really rose at that time. Now, the ingredients were planted long before that. When Ronald Reagan ran for president in 1980, it was the first time that he or we saw a presidential candidate explicitly run an anti-government kind of campaign. Right. He said the thing to fear most is the is a government agent coming to your door and saying, I'm here to help. (laughs) And from that point on. It became completely legitimate and plausible to say that you were against the government, that you didn't support what they did, that they were invading your privacy, that we didn't need them to solve our problems. And that makes it very easy for people to believe that elected office is not a route to actually bring about positive change. Now, the Democrats then jumped on that bandwagon and have provided a ton of examples of Democratic politicians behaving badly, which helps the Republicans make their case. But young people who grew up today, you know, young people today grew up in an era where this is all they've ever known. 
So their first political memories, for the older ones, it was Bill Clinton lying about Monica Lewinsky. For the younger ones, it was George Bush lying about weapons of mass destruction. And so they don't remember a time when it wasn't this polarized, this divisive, and this argumentative. Man. Yeah, no, I, I think it's, yeah, it started to feel that way back then. I mean, that's when they were shutting down the government and um, lots of tension, scandal every day, hearings. Right. That's exactly right. And it coincides with a substantial growth in the 24-hour news cycle. True. So it's possible that 15 years before that, if the same kinds of scandals had ensued, Americans would have heard about that for 10 minutes on the evening news every night, but they wouldn't have been treated to an ever, you know, a never-ending menu of channels and websites and examples chronicling the ills of everything in Washington. Wow. Can you imagine some presidencies having to go through this today? That would mean that we're, that we're you know, deified almost. A Kennedy having to go through today's news cycle. Or right. Roosevelt. It's hard to imagine that you know they would not be able to withstand it either. We, you know, we condemn Bill Clinton and yeah. George W. Bush and Barack Obama, but what they've had to withstand, as far as public opinion and scrutiny is concerned, is so far beyond what previous presidential candidates have had to withstand that it's really comparing apples to oranges. Totally, totally. Let's do this. Let's take a break and continue the discussion in just a few minutes. We're speaking with Doctor for Doctor Jennifer Lawless. She um, is the co-author of the book Running from Office: Why Young Americans are turned off to politics. We'll continue the discussion. Come on, get those kids reanimated, re-excited. Is it possible? We'll find out. Welcome back, friends. Joining us is Jennifer Lawless. She is a professor of government and the director of the Women and Politics Institute at American University. Her research focuses on gender, political ambition, campaigns, and elections in the United States. And she's the co-author of Running from Office, Why Young Americans Are Turned Off to Politics. We are honored to have you here, Jennifer. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Talk about this. Uh, so the kids, the youth from, you know, teenagers up to, I guess, through millennials even. Does it go yeah. that high? Um, the scandals, the partisanship, the prolonged kind of stalemates, the inability to get stuff done in Congress. It's, tur- or it's turning the, the youth off to politics. And is this what does this say about our future politically? Are we going to have, you know, people not running for office anymore? Are we going to have nobody in certain offices? I think there will likely always be people who are willing to throw their hats into the ring and gain some degree of political power. The concern that Richard Fox and I have after conducting the study and then analyzing the results is that the best and the brightest, the ones that really care the most about improving society, the ones with more selfless motives, are more interested in working behind the scenes, working for a nonprofit organization, working for an NGO, than they are running for office. So I worry that the system will wind up just perpetuating itself, and the kinds of people that we have generally found unappealing as candidates will be the only kinds of candidates we have left, the people who are pretty selfish, who have ulterior motives, um, who have garnered a lot of attention for behaving badly. Now, again, that's not to say that every politician is like that, but we've even reached the point where a lot of 
pretty good, solid people have said things like they're not going to run for re-election to the United States Senate because they can't get anything done anymore. And so if we think about people who already had the power and who have already worked in those positions and have seen the good that they can do, decide that it's no longer appealing, you can imagine the kind of toll that takes on the next generation. Yeah. Does, I mean, money become an issue, too, because to go in to take the beating that you have to take currently with the media and the partisanship, it seems like, you know, it might be just easier to just go run another kind of organization. Uh, That could be part of it. The point that I want to underscore here, though, is that we interviewed and surveyed about 4,013 to 25-year-olds. And so we were really just trying to gauge whether the idea of running for any office had occurred to them, whether they thought that if a series of jobs all paid the same amount of money and took the same amount of time, which ones they would find most appealing. They put political positions at the bottom of that list. So we weren't actually asking them about the reasons that they might otherwise be interested but have decided that running is not appealing. So if anything, our numbers are inflated. Mm-hmm. Because when you think about people's attitudes toward think about people's attitudes toward the other kinds of mechanics of engaging in a campaign, even more would be turned off. Oh, totally. It's such a it's such great research, I think, because too it gets us into the I guess the minds. We can feel the pulse of what's going on for our political future. Is there are there changes? Do you propose changes, things that we could do to make it more enticing for our youth so they want to step up? We do. In the last chapter of the book, we propose a handful of solutions that we consider plausible but would involve quite a bit of work. None involve changing the way the media behave or changing the way that politicians behave because we don't see any incentive for either of those parties to do so. So the one that we're the most excited about and that we think could bring about the most positive change is linking political aptitude to the college admissions process. We found that about 88% of our high school students said that the most important goal they had for the future was going to college. And we also know that when college admissions officers about 10 or 15 years ago said that they really valued community service, that high school students' community service activities went through the roof because they wanted to impress college admissions officers. Mm -hmm. And so... What we suggest is linking the college admissions process to to some degree of demonstrating political aptitude. Now, this doesn't need to be in the form of a standardized test or a long essay or anything like that. It could be as simple as a quick question where they're asked in a few sentences to describe an issue they care about in their community. Because what we found was that when young people have to follow current events, when they have to actually engage and read about the political system, they're far more likely to have a positive view of it. Because even though they'll read about negative stuff, they'll also happen upon something positive or some politician doing good. And if we can systematize that exposure and in some ways mandate it, then I think that that would go a long way to triggering interest that's currently absent from them. So true. In fact, I've we've noticed in our own uh, high school by our house about how they go about doing their own political elections and choosing their own student body officers. It used to be the kids that were a little more politically savvy, were more politically involved, were taking debate, were the ones that would go run the campaigns and, and want to run. Now it's just a popularity contest. And at our school, all of the everybody runs, and then this, the the faculty decide who should be what position. So it's almost like Big Brother telling you who should be the president. Anyway, so I sit there and I think, well, that might be dissuading the the youth from even wanting to actually learn how to run a campaign and and learn how to 
to manage media and learn how to be a treasurer? I think that's exactly right. We found that when you look at the extracurricular activities and their relationship to interest in running for office later in life, it is student government, mock trial, and debate team that are the best predictors of whether you're then interested in running later. Varsity sports play a big role, too. So basically, any kind of activity that values and rewards competition generates sustained interest in being competitive later in life. The problem is, if we're already selecting out a lot of the good kids and not encouraging them to run for student government or to participate in those activities, then we're basically suggesting that down the road there's a far smaller crop of viable candidates, and that in and of itself is a problem, too. Do you see a difference with uh, male and female in your research study? We do, and it's interesting. We know that among adults, there's a pretty substantial gender gap in political ambition, where women are less likely than men to be interested in running for office. They're less likely to be recruited to run. They're less likely to be encouraged to run, and they're less likely to think that they're qualified to run. Why? By the way, why? uh, Why? Well, well, so a lot of it has to do with perceptions of bias. We know from study after study that when women run for office, they actually do just as well as men. They're just as likely to win elections and raise as much money. But more than 50% of people out there believe that there is systematic bias against female candidates, Mm. that the media don't treat them fairly, that they can't raise money. And so perceptions of bias suggest to potential candidates as well as party recruiters that women have to be twice as good to get half as far. Mm. So that's why they're more likely to doubt their qualifications. The interesting thing is, while we found the same thing among college students, we found virtually no gender gap in political ambition among our high school students. Ah. This seems to be a, I I don't find this particularly promising because, um, you know, the difference between a 17-year-old and an 18-year-old is not a generational shift. (laughs) It's just freedom associated with college. Um, And so what what we suggest is that, um, you know, when you're in high school, you're competing with all of your peers to get into the best colleges, and you want to be as well-rounded as you possibly can. Once you get into college and you can select your extracurricular activities, your courses, and in some ways, the shackles come off and you have freedom to do whatever you want, we see quite a bit of reversion to traditional gender roles. And there, we see the beginnings of women's political ambition flatlining and men starting to go through the roof. Hmm. Yes, we got to fix that. Right. The good news is that women's organizations can now sort of see where it is that this gender gap in political ambition opens up and try to work with college freshmen and sophomores to close it. There you go. Is um, when When you think also... Of of the millennials and this kind of next generation, do you sense that they will overall as a unit be less inclined at all to even run? Are Are we going to have a big gap, a big bubble in our generations of who will be president? I think that's likely, and I think we're in some ways already beginning to see it when we look at who the nominees are this time around. Yeah. Um, you know, these are baby boomers who are going to be the oldest presidential candidates and ultimately the oldest president that we've had in a generation. So it's still that generation. It's my parents' generation that is still running for and being the most competitive when we come to, you know, you know when it comes to the presidency. Um, when they're not left anymore, or in eight years, let's say, when w- it's time for the next crop, I-, I don't know who those people will be. But we've got a few years to sort of fill the pipeline. We've just got to encourage young people and make them realize that enough of, if enough of them run, they could potentially change the way politics is done. What should I do as a father with my children um, and, and their political aspirations? How do I 
how do I prop you know prop them up a bit and give them some hope that that serving in the community that way is uh, is is a positive healthy thing? It seems to me that the best thing to do is highlight examples of political problems being solved and looking in the community, in the town, in the city, in the state at examples of men and women who are elected officials coming together to achieve an outcome that benefits the citizens. Because we rarely see that on television or on the internet when we look at Washington. So expanding the lens through which young people assess the political arena, I think, is the surest way to encourage them to enter it. Great. Great insight. Dr. Jennifer Lawless, thank you so much for your time, your insights, and uh, your hope. We got to we got to do something, boy. We certainly have to do something. Can you imagine having your children have no, absolutely no hope in their political process? What happens to democracy then? Well, stick with us. We'll take a little break and come back to a little coach's corner. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, you got to get your kids involved in the political process, but I have a son right now doing an Eagle Scout project, trying to get something approved in our town, a plaque I hated that. for a wonderful man who donated, who was like one of the pioneers of where we live, Draper, Utah. And he has to go meet with the town city hall and town council and anyway it's turning them off it's a mess of the political process i tried to paint a wall at an animal shelter and plant three trees how'd that go it was insane <laughs> trying to get everyone's signed off on it like, uh, just and i mean i guess you got to protect your walls and trees all the trees died they eventually knocked the whole animal shelter down so my work did nothing your work was useless. Yeah. I would always be so infuriated with those scouts that would get it approved to just go clean out some fireplaces at a campsite. And that yeah. was their Eagle project. Yeah. Well, come on. Use your brain. So if we want people to get into politics, you got to be careful, right? I mean, you got to you got to incentivize and make it fun for the kids. Show them or, that there's hope. Or simplify the process and don't try to fight so much but that's what it turns into when the when the polls are close is the only thing you can do is go negative yeah and then what it's very congenial everyone's happy when the polls are very you know when someone has a huge lead everyone's like oh yeah it's great no problem but it gets close and it just turns into let's try to punch the other guy as hard as we can not not good which then leads us to our next discussion about the fact that who actually ends up running for president this was interesting wall street Journal. there's only two people running that we know of, right? Oh, so plus two others. You'll hear pe- people say that we have a two-party system and we hate that, but we don't. Yeah. Right? There's two parties, but then there's the Green and the Liberal Party that we, you know, those candidates are there. They're not going to hit the threshold for the first debate, so they won't be on stage. Right. But they're still out there. But then apparently, according to what the Wall Street Journal has found, is there is 1,900 hopefuls who have registered with the agency, the FEC, the Federal Elections Commission, to launch 2016 presidential campaigns. So nearly 2,000. Nearly 2,000 
But do we know any of these people? Um, apparently, uh, someone that goes by the name of uh, God and uh, Satan, they're both attempting to run. They're the two different people running. Yes. Uh, well, good. At least they're representing both no, sides. They, they file the paperwork argument. to launch a campaign. Okay. So the FEC has to go and follow up with them to see what are you doing with this. It's part of their job. So anyone can file paperwork. Now the FEC has to track these people down and figure out what's going on. <laughs> Even though they probably look at the name and know exactly hey, uh, what's Larry, going on. Hey, Larry, can you go call God and see if he's actually going to run? In 2012, there were only 412 people that filed. Oh, wow. Now we have almost 2,000. So I don't know why our last guest thinks that it's not as popular. But uh, last, last time in 2012, Darth Vader, Luke Skywalker, Captain Crunch, the Ghost of Christmas Present, Mickey Mouse, and Francis Underwood <laughs> from Netflix fame, yeah. they all filed to run. This boy. T- the, a boy, an eighth grader in, in San Jose, California, filed to make a 1920 penny a presidential candidate under the name One Cent Piece. Okay. So that was interesting. Uh, if human, the penny would meet constitutional requirements because he's older than 35 and naturalized born citizen. He was created in, yeah, in America. So those are things that are there. Uh, so August 31st, a letter was presented. Uh, Cranky for president, <laughs> man from uh, Arizona. The FEC delivered the message. Cranky for, wasn't that Johnson? Wasn't that his nickname, Could Cranky? It's a, a Cranky Pants was the actual candidate, so they may, he may have filed to uh, failed to include an accurate candidate's name in the ah, paperwork, so okay. they had to follow up on that yeah, one. Yeah. Um, let's see. Rocky Balboa got an FEC letter last month noting that uh, knowingly and willfully making any materially false, fictitious, or fraudulent statements or representation to a federal government agency is punishment under the provisions, and mm. then they list the— yeah. Legal code. A lot of legal. And ease. the guy goes, I didn't know it was, they're taking this so seriously. Dude, I was just messing around. He's an aspiring actor who filed for a campaign dubbed Rocky Balboa running to the sound of his theme song for President 2016. That was like the official name of the candidate. Okay. Boy, people have a lot of time. And apparently them. this goes back to Stephen Colbert had a lawyer on his show back, uh, several years ago in 2011, created a super PAC. He did a whole bit about this where he legitimately made a super PAC. To show how ridiculous super PACs are, it also showed how easy it is to file to and run for election. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. Okay. They're kind of fun. Lots of fun. We. Uh, that's why maybe people aren't taking it quite as seriously. Yeah. And maybe that's the only way to get through this is just a little laughing, a little levity maybe. We'll take a break. We'll come back. Next hour, you got to stick with us. We're talking about bat lickers. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back. (laughs) Welcome back, friends. Hour number two of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the place where we give you the information you need to live longer, love stronger, lead Healthier, happier lives. Today, we will be talking Leadership 101, why so many people just do not like going to trainings at work. You ever been to a leadership training at work? Hey, we're going to do a ropes course. Great. Let's go kill each other on a ropes course. We'll be speaking with a uh, 
somebody that's been in leadership training development for years and how to make it more valuable, why we get so hung up on uh, our training in the in the professional world and uh, and how to make it better. Get to all of that. Plus, big story coming up about bat lickers. Yes, people that lick bats. Hmm. I know. Apparently. Right. Right. Yeah. It's kind of weird. We've talked about people that spray paint animals, which is strange. But bat lickers... Uh, weird, but we're going to be interviewing a, uh, an advocate strongly against the licking of bats and do what we can to take on another, you know, problem in America. Also, uh, today of course is get ready day. The day of redemption is at hand. Repent. And thou shalt be saved. Yep. You never know when the end of the world's coming and you need to be prepared, right? So whether it's an infectious disease, whether it's a pandemic, any other crisis, today's the day you get ready for it. Pack your bags, get a generator, get some fuel, you know, have some storage, It's all just helpful planning, preparing today, September 20th. Get ready day. Plus uh, other headlines, other information you may need to know. Some you probably won't. But either way, you're getting it. And all that fun. Plus, of course, our headlines with Sadie Nielsen. Let's go there now. Sadie, what's up around the country? Several bombs planted in both Manhattan and New Jersey, among them one that detonated Saturday night injuring dozens, were inadvertently disabled by thieves. A pressure cooker bomb was left in a rolling suitcase on West 27th Street in New York City, and a well-dressed man allegedly took the bomb out of the bag and then placed it in a garbage bag before stealing the suitcase. By removing it, officials say the unidentified thief accidentally disabled the device. Once disabled, authorities could look at the cell phone attached to the explosive and eventually trace it back to the New Jersey resident, Ahmed Khan Rahami, who was on Monday. Who in the world finds a pressure cooker with a phone and just takes the bag? A law enforcement source asked on Monday. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio announced at a Monday afternoon press conference that authorities are increasingly convinced that the bombing Saturday in New York City's Chelsea neighborhood and New Jersey's Seaside Park were terrorism-related. We have every reason to believe that this is an act of terror, de Blasio said. The conference came hours after police took suspect Ahmed Khan uh, Rahami into custody in Linda, New Jersey, after a shootout that injured two officers, and the investigation is still underway. Also about the first presidential election, uh, or sorry, debate, it will be September 26th at Hofstra University in New York, moderated by Lester Holt on NBC News. He announced the three topics for discussion are America's direction, achieving prosperity, and securing America. And finally. Yes. Security camera footage from a California YMCA shows a burglar breaking into a playroom through the ceiling and stealing money from a toy cash register. Uh, Fake money? Fake money. The surveillance footage recorded September 10th at the YMCA Child Development Center in Indio shows a man drop into the playroom through the ventilation system (laughs) in the ceiling, immediately target what may have appeared to be a real cash register, but unfortunately it was a plastic toy and the cash the man fled with was worthless money. We got a bunch of real dummies, I tell you. 
Yeah. Wow. And Donald, Donald Trump made a comment on it. So he thought he was getting away with real cash and in reality just play It kitty was cash. just fake cash. Yeah. Poor guy. <laughs> we, got, have, we have some dumb thieves yeah. these days. A lot of the thieves these days, they're just not what they used to be. Yeah. But I'm, do you know what? I'm really grateful that that guy took the, the bomb out of the bag. Mm. I don't know why, what, yeah. what convinced him to just take the bag. Right. With well, a pressure cooker. But do you know what? It probably helped a lot of people. No, so it did. Totally. We I, appreciate him. Who doesn't need a good bag? Absolutely. Really? Wow, Sadie, thanks. That is, uh, that's too bad for that uh, criminal. Yeah, if we had time, we'd do a little coaching con segment on always make sure you're, you're going after real cash when you're breaking into a nursery room. I'm going to bet he would have had a better chance of getting a fruit roll-up than... Any cash. Call me old-fashioned. Okay, so here's the story I've been meaning to talk to you about. Uh, this, if, if you have wondered what's going on with the youth today, I guess we don't even know if these guys are youth. Hmm. Two hikers, Cody Foster and Dustin Ray Gill, are now in trouble because they licked a tricolor bat in violation of federal law. Yes, folks, I said licked. The bat was hibernating in the Bowdoin Cave in West Virginia's uh, Monongahela National Forest, remote enough that if the hikers had kept their bat-licking escapades to themselves, no one would have known or discovered of the crime. Unfortunately, the duo, though, also spray-painted their names on the cave wall and uploaded evidence of the crime to Facebook. A local caving group discovered the graffiti two months later and forwarded the report along to the Forest Service, which then sprung into action investigating the names. They discovered the duo's Facebook pages and discovered photos of the licking as well as the following exchange. Now, by the way, <laughs> they spray-painted their names on the wall of the cave. Um pretty major sign they left. Despite the severity of the epidemic, Gill and Foster got off easy, coming away with only a $250 fine and $70 in fees, and I'm going to bet rabies. They also got a little rabies for licking the bat. And so you may not have heard of the story, um, but we we have had nothing but calls on um, this story from one really frustrated person, uh, Veruca Snively. And we've asked Veruca to come on the show with us. She's been on the show before. Uh, you may remember a story we did a long time ago about um, Delaware Cockroach Sanctuary, where uh, this, you know, some people were trying to protect cockroaches because they're people too. And so um, we had her on the show back then. Now Veruca has picked up another, um, I guess, uh, cause, and she joins us from. Um, from the actual caves where where these bats were licked. And uh, Veruca joins us. She is a member of the American Society of Anti-Bat Lickers. And we are, uh, I guess, honored, Veruca, to have you on the show. Uh, are you there, Veruca? Yes, Matt. Thanks for having me. Um, wow. So from cockroaches to bats, you, you're a very, very busy person. I have spent, I have dedicated a good portion of my life to bats. I've actually even dissected bats just so I could know more about them. But, Ooh. you know, I, of course, afterwards reanimated them. 
Uh, you you okay? So you dissected them and then you somehow brought them back to life? Yes, I, I needed everything. Wow, we might be losing you there, Veruca. Um, now I understand you're very upset about these two these two people going into the cave and licking bats. Uh, talk to us about that. What, what what is what's going on? Of course, I'm upset, Matt. I mean, how would you feel if you're fast asleep and some Yahoo starts licking your hand? I mean, this disgusting addiction, which is what it has become as an addiction, this has got to be dealt with. Bats represent about 20% of all classified mammal species, and they are by far the most highly licked mammals on the planet. (laughs) Sorry, they're the most highly licked? Yes, that's correct. So, I, I think they're number one, and uh, what's the, well, I, what's I only number... focus on that particular statistic. Is, is there, okay, so you don't know the number two most licked animal? I don't even bother myself with that, no. Huh. Well, okay. And um, so the research shows, though, that people are doing this more and more. In fact, you're calling it an addiction. Why on earth do people want to lick a bat? I don't know, Matt. We're still doing some research into that. You mentioned earlier on the show that maybe it's due to the fact that uh, younger people are disenchanted with politics. Maybe they're just bored. I don't know. Uh, You know, another possibility is that uh, most bats are frugivores. Do you know what a frugivore is? No, no. It's, well, bats are fruit lovers, and uh, maybe they are trying to get a taste of something exotic, you know, those fruit lovers out there. Yeah, yeah. But these these bat-licking hipsters don't realize that bats actually play a vital role in our world. Okay. Um, These bat-licking hipsters... They they they're just taking advantage of these bats, and you're saying bats bring us so much more than just you know something to lick. That is correct, sir. I mean, bats perform the ecological roles of pulling flowers and dispersing. Wow! Many tropical plant species depend entirely on bats for the distribution of their seeds, and now most bats no longer even want to go in and this work for fear of these flipping bat lickers showing up for a quick whoa 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 can you Veruca can you just watch your language I mean I, I know you're serious and but just watch your language we, we don't want to have to edit this I'm sorry I'm just very passionate this has just got to stop bats have rights don't forget bats are people too okay <laughs> Actually, bats are bats, right? I mean, they're actually not people. That is your... Who among us has devoted their lives to that, Matt? I believe I have. Thank you. Okay. Um, yeah, you're, you're right. You're right there. Uh, just a quick question. When you were dissecting bats, did you happen to see... Do bats eat cockroaches? You know, bats very rarely will eat cockroaches, and in the case that they do, I'm sure it is warranted. Maybe the cockroach said some sort of disparaging remark that upset him, or I don't know, but it's very rare. The two normally get to get along very well, Matt. Wow. I mean, do you ever, because you have, you're you're with the Delaware Cockroach Sanctuary, there's got to be a point in time where your two loves, bats and cockroaches collide 
Who, if you had to choose one over the other, which would you choose? Asking you to choose which of your children is your favorite. I, it, I, I can't. I simply cannot make that decision. Okay. Well, I appreciate. Appreciate the insight. Uh, well, Veruca, we, time has just flown by. We, we're going to take a break. We do appreciate you, your willingness to fight for the rights of the bat to not be licked. Again, um, we, we're sorry that you had to go through what uh, you've had to go through. Wow. Appreciate you being with us. Now, um, to kind of uh, maybe round off the story a little bit, we do have one of the gentlemen who was involved in licking the bat. And uh, we just we, we only have a little sound with him. We, we weren't able to do an interview with him because he actually is being treated in the local hospital for some um, some infections. But let's let's get to the the audio of I think it's is this Cody Foster. Um, is that who this is, Jeffrey? Yeah, Cody, okay, Foster. Cody Foster, one of the uh, the bat lickers. Last time I checked, man, this is a free country, so I should be able to lick whatever I want, you know? It's like my prerogative, my Fifth Amendment rights or whatever, but if I want to lick a bat, then I can do that. If I want to lick a hat or a mat (laughs) or a gnat or a splat, you know, I can do that because this is America. Uh yeah, it's interesting. That's a great it's a great quote there by Cody. Um yeah. He sure can rhyme too. Yeah, I think he was quoting Dr. Seuss. Yeah. I can lick a hat. I can lick a gnat. Anyway. Uh, and a splat. And a splat. I didn't know you could lick a splat. He said he wanted to lick a mat. I'm thinking I hope he's thinking about a doormat. On that one. Hope so. One of the things that uh, we found interesting on the scene when we sent one of our reporters there, there there were three other protesters. We talked to Veruca, but there were three other protesters. They didn't want to be on camera, uh, but they did allow us to record their chant. You're You're sick. sick. We're We're ticked. We We don't want any bellics. If we moan, we groan. groan. You'll You'll leave leave the poor bats alone. alone. Hey, Bob. 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 You slob. slob. Stop Stop what you're doing and get a job. Doing and get a job. There was that one guy that was always just a little off. Did you hear that? Yeah. They need to get a little coordinated. It's hard when you're just just a bunch of anti-bat lickers put together a good coalition. You know, some would be discouraged with what's going on with the world. No. We're here to bring you the good, the bad, the ugly. We'll take a break. When we come back, why we loathe leadership training. Stick with us. Interesting learning ahead. Welcome back, friends. You know, as an employer, coach, friend, parent, and spouse, one job that we we might always find ourselves doing is motivating others, trying to lead others in uh, certain aspects of our life. Whether we're trying to increase work productivity or just trying to get our kids to do their homework, 
We are constantly faced with situations where we need to help push others. Some days we even find that uh, we may need to motivate ourselves as well. So how do we do it? What methods are the most effective? Uh, Dr. Sidney Finkelstein joins us. He is a returning guest of ours and is here this morning to help us uh, learn and understand better some rules for motivating others. Sidney, thank you so much for being with us. Great to be on again. Thank you. We love having you again. You are the Stephen Roth Professor of Management and the Faculty Director of the Center for Leadership at Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. When, when you think about it, um, you know, we've all kind of gone to those training classes, the leadership p- programs that we have in our workplace. Well, what's your take on those? I mean, a lot of people just don't like those trainings. Yeah, that's uh, that's unfortunately the uh, the case, and there's a lot of reasons for it. Uh, but you know, the bottom line is there's no reason why it has to be that way. I, I feel like a lot of the training is is just people sitting in a classroom, which of course you're not ordinarily doing because everybody's out and about doing their jobs ordinarily. Right. And um, and you're you're passive, and you're the receiver of information from a lecture. And uh, some of those lectures, of course, could be very talented and engaging, and you might enjoy that. But for the most part, it's a one-way street. And, uh, and I think that's one of the biggest flaws. I call, um, um, I call the uh, kind of the alternative the 70-20-10 rule, and that really means um, something like 70% of the time that you're in a leadership training or any type of training for that, uh, for that matter, you should be actually doing stuff, doing an assignment, doing a project, working with other people, uh, being much more hands-on and making it a meaningful project. 20% of the time should be interacting directly with your peers, and 10% of the time should be sitting back and, and just um, absorbing from uh, from lectures. It's kind of the reverse to what you usually see. Yeah. And in fact, um, I did a master's thesis on a, a training approach many, many moons ago. And what I found is people generally, they generally learn more with like the 70, 20, 10 rule, but most of them don't in, I mean, they might even enjoy it, but they, a lot of times they just like the laziness of being talked to, Hmm. being trained. Yeah. I I don't think uh, our job is to give people training programs that, uh, that that they be lazy. Exactly. No, exactly. And so what's, what's funny, there's always been this historic problem of, you know, do do you really want to learn? Because sometimes the the approach where you got to sit down and solve a problem and face to face communicate intimidates people. But apparently, like you're like the idea you're giving us the seventy twenty ten rule, it's more effective. It gets things moving. It uh, it does, and you know, people have to be willing to uh, to get better and to learn and, and advance them themselves. The truth is, if somebody doesn't really care, somebody's not really motivated, it doesn't matter what development program you come up with, it's not going to be very, very helpful. makes me think, really, that uh, managers and people running HR groups should uh, should be pretty selective about who goes in. And the best-run companies, you know, uh, it's considered a badge of honor to be uh, to be asked or invited uh, uh, to go to certain uh, programs because uh, uh, they know that they're, they're meaningful and they're investing in, in you and your, uh, your own time and your own development. And that's uh, that's a good uh, you know that's a good culture that we try to develop. Mm, I like that. Is I, I guess um, because there's a lot of money going into these programs as well, right? This isn't inexpensive. This is that's why you probably want to make sure you're choosing the right people to be there. Yeah, well, these things can cost. You know, companies probably spend tens of billions of dollars if you start adding it up uh, across um, business schools and other universities. 
uh, leadership training that's in-house within companies, all kinds of third-party vendors. There's uh, there, there's a lot, and uh, I'd like to see more technology and more um, and more customization fit into these things because uh, it's not really a, a one-size-fits-all. You know, what uh, what you might need in a program, it's not going to be identical to what I might need to get to, to get better. Presumably, there's some overlap because they're, you know, we're let's say we're in the same organization, we uh, we're, we're we're confronting some of the same challenges. But um, some of these uh, some of the learning platforms that are becoming more and more popular, I think, offer a really good uh, solution because each person, through usually through some type of assessment um, uh, activities, so that's actually one of the things that I've been doing around around the Superboss work that I've uh, I've developed. Uh, gives you a sense of, okay, here are the three or four or five things you want to get stronger on, you want to work on, and then let's put together a, a customized curriculum. And you can do that in a digital sense hmm. where where you don't have to do exactly what everybody next to you is doing. I love that. And I guess the the downside to customizing is expensive, but it's so much more targeted to what you need. Yeah, it, it could be, but if you use Again, these these learning platforms because they're digital and it doesn't require you know people like me to stand up in front of you. Uh, it's um, uh, it, it it does allow you to control your costs somewhat. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, I think because you know it's a trade off between the customization, the effectiveness, the motivation as we're talking about, and and the cost. And I, I don't think they, uh, I, don't, I don't think it's more costly. I think it could be less costly. Yeah, and especially the, with all the digital um, devices, you could deliver it as needed and where's you know most effective for the learner yeah i think that that's exactly where where we're at and, you know you, you and i are talking about this but uh, you know for the people that are in their 20s listening uh, today uh, they're saying well what's the big discussion of course it's going to be on my ipad it's going to be on mm-hmm. my uh, my smartphone and if it isn't i'm not interested Right. Well, for years, it, it meant you had to fly everybody in. Everyone had to be at the right location. And then you had to rent a hotel room and a training room or whatever. So it, the expenses, uh, man, it's it's kind of a neat time and day to be living. But interesting, it still goes back to the history of, of some of these training programs. And whether it's a leadership training, your name of your article is Why We Loathe Leadership Training. There are so many different things that could be made up in that kind of leadership realm of training, right? Well, that's absolutely the uh, the case, and and uh, you know people don't always like the training they get because it doesn't add uh, enough value. It's not uh, close enough to what they're actually doing on a day to day basis. The number one thing I see time and again with groups that I work with is they want they want to know how it applies, and I even tell them in in the beginning of any any program that I've created or been, been involved, uh, that I'm involved with, I, I tell them, you know, the, the litmus test here is whether you're going to be able to use these ideas in a very specific, practical way when you get back to work after a day or two or a week or what have you. And I think that's the um, I think that's the litmus test that everyone should should uh, should focus on. Hmm. What what are we trying to solve? What are we trying to get better at? And are we making sure that we're com- coming away with some actionable, specific ideas? And by, by the way, you don't need 20 ideas. Nobody could do anything with 20 ideas. Uh, I, I think, you know, one or two really great ideas can really move the needle and would make the investment much more worthwhile. Yeah, and it might be easier to to master one or two instead That's of great, great 20, point. 50. Is, um, as you look at it in your article, you brought up the 70-20 rule, which is we, we basically have to make sure that this is more about 
practical, hands-on practice and application. Um, and also another rule you just kind of got into is the customization. Customize it to your world. I mean, if if you – I guess this is the hard part because you bring up the point that there are a – chemi- a chemical company might need different skills and or a different implementation of a practice than maybe, you know, an HR company. So to, in order to customize, do you need to bring in experts to do that? Is there a way that you could just have your own people do the training and, and customization? There's a, there, there are a lot of, uh, a lot of facts to decide in, in that because uh, some companies will develop their own internal HR training people, and they could be perfectly, perfectly good, but they've got to be world-class. And uh, I think people see right through any cost savings uh, moves by companies that say, well, let's use some of our ter- internal folks. And they don't just match up to what, uh, what you can get uh, uh, when you start looking for some of the, uh, some of the most uh, experienced and talented people that are, that are out there. So that's something to, uh, to pay attention to. And, um, uh, and, and I think when it comes to the, the customizing part specifically, I think one of the watchouts is when you go to a, a supplier, a vendor, a company, a training company, a university, and they um, they design a program for you. Uh, I'd I'd ask them. So is this the same program you've given to you know a dozen other companies? What what's so special about about this? How does it fit into our world? And what are the specific takeaways? And this is also a really big. Uh, challenge for any training program. What are the what are the outcomes? How can we measure whether it has an impact or not? This has always been the biggest challenge when it comes to leadership or any any type of training. And and I have some sympathy towards it because um, sometimes it's about just getting better in terms of your your mindset and, and expanding what you how you think about things and being able to specifically measure that is is difficult. On the other hand, I think the pressure towards measuring outcomes in pretty much everything we do is increasing mm. and I think the best programs are going to have to figure this one out. Yeah, so you're going to have to get some some data to validate its worth. Uh, and then I guess in the way in the end that that's good too, right? We make sure that we we're we're measuring the right things and, and doing it the right way. We're speaking yeah. with uh, Dr. Sidney Finkelstein and he's a uh, a faculty member um, at Tuck University, he's the Stephen Roth Professor of Management and the Faculty Director, Center for Leadership. He's walking us through his article, Why We Loathe Leadership Training. We'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion. Two more points that we can do to improve our leadership and motivation training. Stick with us. Friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking about an article, Why We Loathe Le- uh, Leadership Training, by Dr. Stephen Finkelstein. F- Dr. Finkelstein is a uh, the Stephen Roth Professor of Management and the Faculty Director at the Center for Leadership at Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. And uh, he's, uh, he's coming back to educate us some more. Thank you so much, Sydney, for being with us. Good to be on with you, Matt. Again, so we've talked about uh, the fact that you got to you got to 
take good use of your time when you bring these people in a classroom. And you're, I mean, the, the, I used to, when I would do leadership training, I would always add up the money in the room, the cost and the opportunity costs of having all these people not back at their desks. And it, it's a lot of money when you think of it that way. Well, it really, uh, it really is, and you've got to, uh, you got to respect that, right? Uh, right. You have to put together something that moves the needle, that is meaningful, and uh, and uh, you know, the money thing is is obviously critical. But I think as a professional in this field, uh, you have a you have a personal responsibility to deliver, create, and deliver um, a program and set of activities that are truly impactful, that will make a difference, that people will remember. And that's, uh, that, that's the standard I think, uh, I think we all need to hold ourselves to. Mm. One of the points you make, too, is that we need to eat your own cooking. What do you mean? Yeah, so uh, I have, um, I've been involved in some leadership programs where uh, I've led uh, groups of uh, quite senior executives uh, using some of the 70-20 rule that we talked about, which is much more hands-on projects and, and activities and not just sitting in the classroom. And uh, they've been great experiences. But inevitably, the question comes up, well, you know, uh, is the executive committee, meaning the top 10 or 15 in the company, are they, uh, are they getting the same training? Are they getting the same experience? Because this has really been revealing, and they need to know about this. They need to, they need to be thinking about these things. And uh, I always tell the truth, obviously, and the truth very often is no, they actually don't want to do that or and they chose not to. Most of the time, the reason is because, well, their time is even more valuable, right? right. They're even right. They're, they're so busy. They don't have the time. It's not about cost when you get to the very top uh, top of the uh, pyramid. But uh, is it the case that they're so val- their time is so valuable that they can't learn the things that they think are so important or engage in the issues that they think are so important for the for the direct reports? It sounds it sounds a little bit ludicrous, and and I can tell you that the the power of a, a program, the power of a um, of, of an experience, really does get affected by whether the, the 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 people in the room, whether they're bosses, whether it's very very top or mid level, wherever they happen to be in a company, in any organization, whether their bosses are also engaged in this, because that's uh, that's in a way maybe the best the best measure of whether you know your boss thinks it's a good idea for you to go, but she won't do it herself. Well. Mm-hmm. That's that's everything you need to know. Well, and I learned if we can't get the bosses in the room, it's not going to trickle down. It's not going to work. Oh, that's uh, that's completely true. In fact, that's uh, close to one of the uh, other rules, if you will, that I uh, that I wrote about, uh, and that is uh, how how any type of leadership training program has to be closely integrated with your actual boss. Because just just think about this. No matter, you know, let's say spend, I don't know, a week, a week out of the office doing different activities as part of a training program. Uh, how, how does that compare to how much time you're actually working in your team with your boss on a regular basis? Yeah. And, and, and you know, it's a huge difference. We spend so much of our time working with, uh, working with our colleagues and working uh, with and under our boss. And uh, so why wouldn't we want to uh, integrate that? Why wouldn't we want to have... Uh, that boss involved in um, in the program, and not just involved in the program, but but engaging in a way that's going to reinforce and um, and facilitate some of the learning that comes out of these of these programs. Well, there's that cognitive dissonance, that that weird moment where we're talking about something in the classroom, 
And people in the back of their heads, they know, yeah, well, that that won't work here because our bosses don't do it. But if that boss is in the room, I mean, I've had really powerful dialogues start up where, you know, the room was safe enough for people to say stuff and the executive didn't react. He just opened up and learned. And it was a powerful yeah. – It was. It, I mean, it was really, I guess, the essence of leadership. It's uh, it's great when that uh, when that happens, and I've uh, I've seen it as well. But then you do sometimes see the opposite, right? Which is when your boss is actually in the room. You know, do you really want to say everything you're you're thinking? And whenever I see that, uh, it's a signal. You know, this culture is not not where it needs to be. The best cultures are ones where people are unafraid to share in respectful, appropriate ways things that they that they believe in. And in fact, in the best companies, the best cultures, they're doing it, you know, whether I'm around or whether there's any leadership training going on or, uh, or not. But even, even if the boss is not there at the same time, I have found that most people, especially as you go further up in an organization, they're asking me and they're wanting to know, you know, are, are our bosses, are the top people in this company, are they engaging in this thing at the same, not at the same time, but at any time? Are they, are they being exposed to some of these ideas? Because if, if it's going to change how I think about my job and what I think the potential is for this company, then uh, it, was sure, it sure would be easier if uh, you know, my boss and bosses at the very top are also in the same page. Mm. It's sure, it sure is. I guess, too, this is um, a lot of times people just kind of say, oh, yeah, yeah, we've done that class. We've done it. But you're talking about a different thing. You're, ta- you're talking more about not just doing the training, but actually becoming, you know, changed by it, by, by being in, enveloped in it. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it, it's, again, it's this difference between being passive and saying, okay, I got that. It's like, I got the booster shot right? and I'm going to be okay versus totally engaging in the ideas, using the ideas, using them in a practical way on the job, uh, engaging with your boss, uh, maybe before, sometimes during, but absolutely afterwards. It's, um, I, I don't know if it's exactly the same analogy, but it's almost like, you, you know, the passive approach, the simple approach is, well, let's get that, uh, let's get that inoculation and I'll be, I'll be fine. I won't, I won't get sick versus the person that's going to go out and exercise every day mm. uh, in addition to the inoculation because of the vaccine or whatever, because that's going to help them get better and better all the time. And that's, that's the essence of motivation. That's what you want for people in your in your organization. That's it. It's like becoming culturally like a learning organization, an organization that wants to grow, wants to develop, wants to live the highest level. How how do you instill that? I mean, do you hire that? Do you lead that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's uh, one of the one of the topics that I've spent a fair amount of time on over the last few years. And, uh, as you know, uh, I wrote a book called Super Bosses yeah. uh, that came out a few months ago, and uh, and, and that book gets uh, gets close to this very question you're you're asking, which is how do you how do you motivate and energize people to create the type of culture environment that you want? And one one of the answers is to be looking for special, unusual talent, people that can make a difference. But there's also a big part about inspiration, and it's one of these you know soft words out there. But in my experience, it's a big differentiator. Are you able to energize and, and, and inspire the people that work for you? Truly believe that they are the ones that can make stuff happen, that they can, that they can do it. And, and you need a strong vision to do that. You need to really be authentic and, and you need to believe the, the message. You can't be you know, just 
inspiring people by by just talking and not really meaning anything. It has to be uh, it has to be meaningful, and, uh, and and you want to really instill a sense of confidence into the people around you, so they know that they they were handpicked by you, the boss to be on this team, kind of like the old Mission Impossible movies. You, mm-hmm. know? you looked at all the photos, yeah. you picked the people, well, uh, uh, all you men and women on this team, I, I've handpicked you, and the reason is because you are the best, and you're going to be able to accomplish these, these incredible challenges we have in front of us. And that, I mean, those are, those are the things that, you know, it's not just in the movies or on TV. These are the things that the best leaders, the super bosses, as I call them, that's what they do, that others uh, often do not. So true. Dr. Sidney Finkelstein, thank you so much for your great uh, insights. And everybody, go check out the book, Super Bosses, How Exceptional Leaders Manage the Flow of Talent. And if you just go Google Matt Townsend Show and Sidney Finkelstein, you'll be able to come up with, uh, it'll pop up that last interview we did where where you can then go in-depth and and learn more about uh, being a super boss as well. Okay, Leadership Training 101. It's your responsibility if you're the leader. And if you're the participant, it's time to learn. We'll take a break, come back, do a little Coach's Corner, wrap up hour number two of the show. Stick with us. Billy, where's Goldie? I put him in the lake. What could go wrong? Descending fissure. It's at least 200 feet, Novak. (laughs) Sam? Something bit me! Sam, what are you seeing down there? It's like this body's been in the water for weeks. I want to know what this thing is doing in my lake. Goldfish hunt and packs. The first bite draws blood. The blood draws the pack. This Christmas... Little Goldie's out of his bag. Now he's out for revenge. Goldie, this ends now. Goldie, the goldfish the size of a football. I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, I spent many years going into organizations to do coaching and uh, training for their training departments. And some people loved it because they are like, sweet, three days, and I don't even have to go to my work. Others, you know, struggled with it. But if you're the one putting together the training and the development for the organization you really need to invest a little time and energy to make sure you're getting what you want. Many times, even when I'll go do a keynote for a meeting or an event, a lot of times the people that are hiring me to come in, they don't even want to do a conference call. They don't want to do a call and, and like inform me as to the issues that, the, that their company is facing. That's just – just, just speak. Just do your pony show. Just get up there and just dance. So, man, you're you're spending money and you're going to have somebody there for an hour or two up to three, four, five days. Spend some time planning and preparing. We ought to be preparing, you know, for every hour of delivery, you ought to have two or three hours of preparation is how I look at it. 
And if if we're doing that, then you'll probably get more for your money. Also, I guess another basic component is some accountability. I always like to have pre-work done for people before they get there. So they're actually have their head thinking about it before we start the program. Then I like them to go through the program. And then I always like to have post-work, follow-up work as well. So there's tools. There's information for you. And uh, part of it, too, is make sure as a learner that you get in there and do everything you can to take advantage of these opportunities. A lot of the trainings that you'll have in your corporate life impact and could impact your personal life as well. Don't see them only as a business thing. And I don't, I've taught systems. I've taught all of these different programs. And each one of them can help you at home easily just as much as they do at work. So... Take advantage of all of that. Now, some other headlines for us, Terry. Um, where do you want to start? Well, in light of the bombing in New York, and they caught this, uh, I guess, suspect, we call him at this point, and uh, some people started putting things on the t- publishing on Twitter yesterday, things that New Yorkers are more afraid of than ISIS. So uh, there are things that they are more terrified of than the ISIS threat. Yes. What, would, what could that be? Uh, this guy, it started with a guy named Bobby Big Wheel. That's what he goes on uh, <laughs> Just Twitter. Just call me Bobby Big Wheel. New York fears ranked. One, pushed onto subway tracks. Yeah. That's more likely to That's happen than an ISIS attack. Big so, deal. Uh, was it a seamless outage? Seamless outage. So... Seamless, seamless outage of services? I believe so. That might be like a, a reference to the train system? Could be, or maybe the power. If the power goes off, they have like rolling blackouts. I don't know. Huh. Uh, having to go to Times Square. <laughs> that, he's scared of that because you know about Elmo and different yeah. people around there. Uh, the favorite uh, restaurant, Gentrified. Yeah, having to go there. Uh, hipsters show up. That's scary. And then he puts down, uh, that's one through four, and then 1,563 would be ISIS. Wow. So that's his list. 1,563. Yeah. He goes on and says, five, sidewalk, great collapsing. Uh-huh. Six, falling air conditioner. Oh, yeah. Because there's that concern yeah. off of yeah. buildings. Uh, friend is now in an improv troupe. <laughs> that could be scary. Uh, neighbor has bed bugs, because that means you soon you will. And <laughs> nine, getting back from uh, from EWR. I think he's trying to get back from an airport. Yeah, EWR. So it goes on. Summer blackouts. I think that's what the seamless outage would be, a summer blackouts. Uh, It's New York, so there's a lot of rats. They're talking about you you find a a rat in your toilet. You dirty rat. That would be scary. Is Uh, Cockroaches. Apparently most, if they do polling, most New Yorkers are afraid of cockroaches. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, this all makes more sense. These are all, you're more likely to run into these than maybe the terrorist attack. This guy says, number one, fear touched by a flying cockroach. It's just not something you want. Uh, This message brought to you by Bernie Sanders supporters for the extermination of cockroaches. Roaches. Feel the burn. Feel the burn. That's a great, uh, that's why Bernie was such a big hit in New York. Lizzie O'Leary says, number one, stuck on a subway with your ex. (laughs) Right? That's awkward and you don't want to do that. A pigeon to the face. (laughs) Bam! That's Three, dirty. Stepping on a rat. See more really? rat things. Yeah. People really don't like the rats. Four unannounced landlord visit. <laughs> Surprise. Uh, musician neighbor. There's a fear. Yeah. Guys across the hall with his accordion. That'd be Matt Townsend as a kid. <laughs> totally. 
uh, more subways. This guy says uh, in a subway car with no air conditioning. Yeah, that would be oh, that would be pretty nasty. Stuck. That's gross. Uh, and the third, what this guy put is they cut my bagel in half and then in half again. Oh come on! They just keep just a quarter cutting bagel. them out. Things that people are more afraid of than ISIS. I'd be more afraid of somebody dying right next to my cronut bakery line. No, that was fine. Oh, yeah. People are fine with that. But just staying in line. Uh, stories began uh, with the, the story. This story is an aer- airplane story. It begins with a distress call from an airplane. They don't end happily. Whenever there's a distress call, there's usually a problem. This yeah, one, right. a Saudi Arabian Airlines flight sent up an alarm saying it had been hijacked as it approached landing in Manila on Tuesday. The Philippines responded with full mobilization. As soon as the plane touched down, it was immediately isolated. Police, hostage negotiations, all this kind of stuff were there. But it turned out there was... No one on board. There was no one on board attacking the plane or huh. hijacking the plane. The flight crew had really mistakenly pushed the hijack button and uh, didn't know it. So they sent out a distress call. Holy cow. So the whole apparatus. Don't you hate it police, when you accidentally push the hijacking button? It's happened to me often. <laughs> you have a panic button, a hijack button. You mistake. It's a mispunch. It's a, yeah. It's a mispunch. Jeff knows about that. Oh, apparently not. Apparently not. <clears throat> I'm glad we don't have a hijack button because we'd be hitting it all the time. Oh, yeah. Mm. So they mistakenly put out an SOS that they were being hijacked, but maybe you know, somebody... Hey, mistakes may, happen. Maybe the button needs to be moved. And maybe it's by somebody's knee and they just accidentally tapped that's it. That's it. That's it. Oh, did you hit the hijack button again? <laughs> See? You need the angel sound. That means it's the right button you've pushed. What do you think they were trying to push? They were probably just trying to push the co-pilot eject button. Is that what it was? Oh, there it is. Yeah. Oh, I've, I've pushed that on an airline before. It'll suck you right out. you got to be careful. Yeah. That thing. They're powerful. That'll break your eardrums. Okay, we'll take a break, folks. Uh, we've got a lot of uh, fun stuff next hour. Stick with us. Continue the discussion um, just about the crazy news of the day. Plus, we'll be talking about postpartum depression. I haven't ever suffered it, but I know people that have. Difficult stuff. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live healthier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Hour number three of the program. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. We do what we can every pro- every day. In fact, three hours a day to give you the information, the tools you need to live healthier, happier lives. Top of the morning to you. We have got a great program for you. Um, today we will be speaking with Julie Nelson, the bomb mom we call her, about postpartum depression. That uh, that's a it's a big deal, and in fact, you better prepare, Terry. Not that you're going to go what? through it. I worry about you suffering personally from it when you have the baby. Me, your Myself? wife, your oh. wife won't, but you will. Me, yeah, because you're going to have post no work depression because you that? won't be able to come in here and enjoy the love of this team. I don't I don't know if that would be quite the concern or have quite the effect you're hoping that it would have but uh 
I'll yeah. mi- I'll I'll miss you guys to some level. Yeah, to a huge level. Huge. I'm telling you. Because Sadie will be here just running the show. And then Jeff and I'll just pretend like we know what we're doing. Pretend? I think, I think we're all going to be a little depressed when Terry goes to have his baby. Well, if Sadie would bring in those cronets, I think that would help. I think if Sadie, if she wants to be the producer that we all know she could be, then cronuts would help. Mm-hmm. Can't the, hurt. The mix between croissants and donuts. Cronuts. We're stepping over a dead body for. So we'll talk to Julie Nelson uh, today. Normally, we'd also speak with our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. We're not going to be visiting with them today. They're, they're out on a date. Important business. They've got important business. But we have other headlines as well, plus a hero story that we'll get to. And, uh, you know, we'll give you some rules on when when is a good time to cut down your neighbor's tree. And when's a bad time that you just ought not be messing with their tree. All that ahead. But first, let's get to the headlines with Sadie Nielsen. Find out what's coming on around the rest of the country. Sadie? The suspected New York City bomber recently visited his native Afghanistan, according to those who knew him. The New York Times reported Monday afternoon that around four years ago, Ahed Khan, Ahmed Khan Rahami, 28, traveled to the country of his birth, and according to the patrons of his family's restaurant, he returned a remarkably different person. He grew a beard, began wearing traditional Muslim garb, and became serious and completely closed off. CBS News confirmed with U.S. officials that Rahami had traveled to Afghanistan at least once in the recent years and that he was not on any terror watch list. A report released by the Department of Homeland Security's Inspector General Monday revealed an estimated 858 immigrants were mistakenly granted citizenship, the Associated Press reported. The individuals who reportedly had pending deportation orders were from countries with frequent immigration fraud and pose a security concern to the U.S. A suspect accused of making a bomb threat at Eagle Valley Elementary School in Eagle Mountain, Utah, is now in custody. The individual, a Caucasian man in a black mask with a turban-style headwear, claimed to have a large amount of explosives in a car outside the school on Monday. Authorities got him to surrender through negotiation, which he discussed social wrongs he felt had been committed against him. And finally... Sup. Authorities in Wisconsin released security camera footage of a man stealing a snake from a pet, sco- pet store by shoving the serpent down his pants. The Menominee Falls Police Department said the unidentified man walked into the pet store and shoved a non-venomous rat snake into his pants. The man then walked out of the store without paying for the $105 animal, police said. Uh, Store employees said the man is a regular, but they do not know his name. He's a regular (laughs) here. I don't know what that means, being a regular at the pet store. Like, does he just come in and look at the hamsters? This guy's constantly stuffing stuff down his pants. That is crazy. Of all things to choose, though, like a a rat snake? snake? Yeah, no. Weird. No. no. Man, Sadie, thanks. Way to stay on the news and catch the guys. You know what? He's got to be careful because we just did a story last hour about um, bats. And we don't want that that lady after him, right? Because she's, she's always uh, Veruca. Was that her name? Veruca Snively. Snively. She's, she's always mad at people that mistreat animals so i'm pretty sure stuffing a snake down your pants in order to get it out of the pet stores enough to get veruca on the on the scene <sighs> okay so 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 many things to talk about first we got to get to um 
this guy that was really angry about sap. Okay, so he parks his car under a tree, and the tree actually belongs to his neighbor, but the limbs hang over into his area. So he parks his car, and then the tree just drips sap, apparently, and it's driving this Pennsylvania man crazy. So he decided to take everything into his own hands. He went over to his neighbor's house and on the weekend and decided that uh, he's going to cut this tree down um, because he's sick and tired of it. Police say uh, Raymond Mozzarella grabbed a chainsaw and cut down the tree in his neighbor's yard. The tree sat uh, there. It had branches over his parking space. By the way, he doesn't even have a house. He had an apartment he was renting. But this guy's house tree was driving him crazy. So when he cut the tree down, though, a 36-inch wide trunk. Okay, that's a big trunk. The tree actually fell onto this guy's apartment. <laughs> onto his own apartment. Yeah. I am the smart. S-M-R-T. I mean, S-M-A-R-T. There's a quote right there from uh, the Raymond Mozzarella. The tree ended up then, you know, hurting, damaging his apartment building. But he, in the end, decided it was the best thing to do to get rid of the tree. Where he thought it was going to go, I I didn't know. So he didn't mind uh, the collateral damage there. No. In the end, he thought it was the best thing he could do because he couldn't have it dripping sap on his car. Uh, apparently, after the whole thing went down, Mozzarella got in charged with aggravated assault after getting into a fight with the neighbor. So I wonder if he got in a fight before the tree fell on the apartment or after the tree fell. Yeah, maybe there had been words before. And uh, then he's like, yeah, I've just decided to take that tree down. Well, you've got to give him credit, though, because you should always talk to somebody first before you go behind their back, or try to take matters into your own hands. That's true. <laughs> At some point, you could, I guess, just cover your car. If there's nowhere else to park except under a sap-dripping tree, which, by the way, is better than a bat-licking guy. True. Right? Sap-dripping tree, then maybe just cover your car. You know what he should have done? He should have uh, put some mosquitoes on the branches. Then they could drink the sap. Hmm. Then they could get covered in the sap. Ah. And then thousands and thousands of years from now, some crazy scientist could extract wow. the – the. well, I, yeah. I was trying to go yeah, with yeah, Jurassic yeah. Park with this, but I forgot about the dino blood that the mosquitoes were sucking first. Yeah. yeah. So that kind of fell flat. That You went out on a limb for that one, didn't you? Anyway, a little advice to you, um, again, before you, you cut down your neighbor's tree, always make sure that you you talk. And if your name is mozzarella, stick to pizza. Make some cheese. Mmm. Got to like it. You got to like it. Officers apparently penalized for taking recruits to play Pokemon Go. Two officers in the suburban Denver Police Department that is now under federal investigation, are no longer allowed to train recruits after taking them to play Pokemon Go instead of just teaching them. A pair of Commerce City officers were removed from the field uh, training duties last week. You can't 
you can't take recruits to play Pokemon Go. Why not? It's not part of what they should be learning. But I think this guy that was in charge was, you know, like two Pikachus away from getting a perfect score. So he needed the help. Yeah. This is actually a really good story for Terry, who nobody loved Pokemon Go more than Terry. And Terry spent a lot of time working with our producers, and instead of holding training meetings, he was probably just training them on Pokemon Go. I, it took me a while to catch Pikachu. You finally got the little Then I did. And I, and I was done. I showed you the picture. I was trying to capture Pikachu in the backseat of my car. You know, I, I'm surprised Pika survived at all. He's kind of cute and just... He's like the snuggly bear. I just want to snuggle him to death. So these guys probably would not be good candidates for leadership training then, just no. as you were talking right. earlier. No. You got you to gotta train. You can't just go messing around. This is some serious business. People need the police force to know what they're doing, for heaven's sakes. Am I the only one that knows this stuff? Um, it's also, by the way, we forgot to celebrate uh, but a super important holiday today, Get Ready Day. Y'all ready for this? Today, my friends, is the day that you get ready for any possible disaster that could come your way, a pandemic, infectious diseases, any other crisis, How about natural a space disasters. station falling out of the sky? That would be bad. Apparently, China, a couple years ago, launched a prototype space station. Yeah. It goes up in 2011. It's called the... Uh, it translates to heavenly place. I'm not going to try to... Try it. No, just try. So, no. Uh, so five years from that launch, now they have lost control of it. Oh, boy. Instead of saying they've lost control, Chinese officials instead say that the space station will fall back to Earth at some point in 2017. Some point is the best estimate that China will give. They no longer have control of the station, so when it comes down, it'll just come down when it's good and ready. So the people of New York are worried about air conditioners falling. Yes. But really, they should be worried about a space station from China that they haven't lost control of. They just they look at it more as they haven't quite taken it to its fullest yet. Right. Do you think Pluto had anything to do with this? Yes. Could. Pluto's has a lot of... A lot of angst. Maybe we ought to interview well, Pluto to find out, Mo Pluto, to find out if he knows anything about the space station. He oh. is building a wall. He is. Around. Of, of, of course, the, the concern Earth. of the space station is, will pieces of, make it to the Earth? Yeah, for sure. A lot of, most of it they feel will be burned up in the atmosphere as it reenters. Hold but on, they, the people that have lost uh, control of it? They hope. Okay. But, you know, if some does come fall to the Earth, it'll shower across possibly populated areas yeah what they're saying is the data collection ended in march from the space station and then they uh the plan was to perform a controlled descent and burn up in the atmosphere but certainly something went, went wrong now that they have no control they do believe the chances of anything falling on a populated area being small because the earth is quite large most of it's covered in water yeah i mean the odds so, of it uh you know we don't know where it's going yeah we don't know where it is, and we don't know how to control it. So, But the odds of it impacting any of you, very rare. Today being Get Ready Day, get ready for a space station reentry, possibly but on top of you. Not till 2017. 
Yeah, we, we have time. We have time. You got plenty of time. I would get a generator, and I would probably figure out where you should live. Some protective headgear would be warranted, probably. Do you know a great place to go? Might be Cholula, Mexico. Ooh. The Great Pyramid of Cholula was built in twenty three or 2,300 years ago in Mexico. Locals have rediscovered the structure in 1910. It is known as the largest known pyramid, but it's underground. The pyramid apparently was covered. It's a fallout shelter. In dirt. It is now a fallout shelter. Perfect. Seems like a scheme yeah, of you some think kind. So. No, it's not. It's like a, a pyramid scheme. Great point. Right. It's a, it's, it, it is a scheme. It's hard to if, argue with that logic. If you get three people under you and they get three people under them, then eventually five levels deep, you're loving it. It's uh, 400 burial sites for human remains have been found inside of this huge pyramid. The pyramid, they may excavate. It's almost twice the volume of the Great Pyramid in Giza. It's also wider and it's shorter. Giza is now about 138 meters tall, while Cholula comes in at just 66 meters in height. Half as tall. I'm not dead. Think I'll go for a walk. I feel happy. Well, I think they maybe That's some good audio buried some people a little too early. In the Cholula Pyramid. Anyway, so if, uh, if you start to notice stuff falling from the sky, I would head to Mexico. And I'm pretty sure, I, I think I was just near Cholula's pyramid. I have a feeling it's near Cancun, maybe. What do I know? What do I know? Anyway, we're going to take a break. When we come back, our bomb mom will be joining us. Today we will get into the subject and the topic of postpartum depression and psychosis. Julie Nelson will be joining us. Plus, she's bringing a guest, somebody that has suffered from postpartum depression, so we can all get a better understanding of what it's like to go through that uh, very difficult situation. Not only do you have this beautiful gift from heaven... But your body chemically is taking, a, taking it out on you. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we'll be taking on a topic uh, many don't talk about. You may have heard about it brought up before. Postpartum depression and psychosis. Joining us is Julie Nelson. She We call her the bomb mom. Really? It's the bomb. It's the bomb. She teaches uh, classes such as applied parenting and marriage and relationship skills at Utah Valley University. If you go to her website, a spoonful of parenting.com, you can get a great uh, taste of all of her her wonderful insight and research. She's the author of two books, Parenting with Spiritual Power, Keep It Real, and Grab a Plunger, 25 Tips for Surviving Parenthood. And she brings a friend with her today, Noreen Lemon, to help her with today's topic. Noreen, thanks for being with us as well. Thank you. Julie, thank you. Thank you for inviting me back. Good to see you. And we enjoyed your, I think it was sweet rolls. Mm-hmm. The cinnamon rolls last oh, time. Oh, my heavens. <laughs> On our topic of the power smells. Those, that was incredible. I hope, I hope you're spraying Windex all over your house. Oh, yeah. Okay. In fact, I saw Jeff drinking it yesterday. And then, and then people will clean up more. Yeah. Every 
everybody's cleaning up more because of the simple smell. So talk to us about postpartum depression, Julie. It's a uh, – I, I think it's something I don't – I mean I could relate to depression. Mm-hmm. But I've seen clients that suffer from postpartum depression and they, they, they feel like they, they don't like their child. They don't like what they're going through. And then they don't even like themselves. Yeah, because they think there's something wrong with them. Why don't I have this overwhelming love for my baby? Yeah. And there's a lot of hormonal changes going on after birth. And some we can attribute just to baby blues. And this is different than baby blues where for maybe a week or two you're feeling a little bit, you know, it's hard to adjust mm-hmm. your sleep, you know, having sleep de- deprivation. Ugh. But this is something that's more chronic and it will last much longer than two weeks and it gets more severe. Uh, much more um, – uh, violent thoughts, greater despair, um, don't want to get out of bed. Um, and you start to feel like you're not yourself at all and that there's something wrong, seriously wrong with you. Mm. Um, so we call this postpartum depression. And it's what we want to talk about today. We've, in some studies, one large study to date shows that as many as one in seven, ch- uh, one in seven women suffer from postpartum, which is much higher than I think anyone yeah. would imagine. One in seven women um, that was published in the journal of um, the JAMA, the psychi- psychiatry. And um, they recommend that all pregnant women and new mothers are screened for depression because one in seven is so high. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that should probably be part of our mental health assessment with mothers who are going through so much transitional um, body changes and mental health changes and then just lifestyle taking home this baby? What do I do with this? I mean, super overwhelming already. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we're talking about symptoms that are more aligned with chronic depression um, that are perhaps um, jump-started by having a baby and things like being feeling dark in a dark abyss, being alo- feeling alone, um, just wanting to sleep all the time, end your life, having severe panic attacks, feeling overwhelming despair, um, not wanting to wake up after sleep and wanting to escape somehow and also, also could be wanting to do harm to your baby. Mm-hmm. So um, one researcher found that 20% of women um, with um, postpartum had suicidal thoughts, um, dark, dark despair. And so we want to talk about this and bring it into light because so few people want to talk about this because it could be something that is um, – we know we we feel a little bit uncomfortable with could be stigmatized, and so um, I've brought my friend Noreen today to talk about her experience. Noreen Lemon, mm-hmm. yes. Noreen, thanks for being here. Thank you. Because this is like it's very personal, it's very private. Sometimes you, it's like you might even feel un- ashamed that you even had those negative thoughts. Mm-hmm. But tell us your experience. Uh, so I, prior to having my baby, I really thought that postpartum was a farce mm-hmm. <laughs> and that it wasn't a real thing. And I actually remember going to one of those labor classes mm-hmm. and we watched a video and there are all these women crying on there and boohooing about their husbands going to work. And it was so hard. And I got in the car afterwards with my husband and I said, that was the dumbest thing I have ever seen. And um, I said, if they would just pray or something, they would just be fine. And uh, so I got a lesson pretty quickly right after I had my son. Um, I started having sleepless nights, but um, very quickly I had a sleepless night where I started to be have thoughts that for sure I was dying and there was no way I was going to live. 
And I had kind of decided the next day was what the next day would be like. And the next day would be ugly. And um, I would have to go to the hospital. And they would tell me I was going to have so long to live, maybe two or three days. And I was... I was wow. done. And so um, I finally, after shaking and having um, just these horrible thoughts, fell asleep for about an hour. And when I woke up the next morning, my husband was laying there with the baby. And um, I said, that was a really weird night. Hmm. I don't know what to do. And I thought for about five minutes I was okay, but then everything started coming back, like just this, my heart was racing, all of that. And the great thing about that was it was so extreme. I knew something was wrong. Um, yeah, so it wasn't I, subtle at no, all. It was no, no. And so I think for me, that was the blessing of it, that it was so extreme, right. so fast. And so I called the doctor's office and they immediately st- they didn't put me on hold. They said, tell me what you're feeling like. It was a very quick because uh, very recently in the area we lived in, a mom had killed all of her children and herself. Oh. And so our response was, we've got to do something to take care of this. Yeah. So, is, yeah. Wow. And you, you're you just thinking, what is going on here? Yeah. Because but it feels real. The thoughts are so coming in. so real. So real. And such odd thoughts. Like I remember one night thinking these little men were going to come and they were all going to kill me. And it was very real. Seemed now absurd. But during that moment, very real. Is it chemical? Is that what's happening here? Julie, is that how this goes? Is it, I guess it starts with chemistry and exhaustion. Yeah, as research I looked at, up, it uh, could be genetic. Um, it also could be chemistry, hormonal imbalance. But also we've looked into many cases in women who have hurt themselves and have hurt their children perhaps. Mm-hmm. And they some of these they attribute it to PTSD, mm-hmm. um, meaning that they um, have – and I have one recent case here in Utah, in Salem, Utah, um, Emily Dykes, who she um, had her fifth child and was fine through four. And then our fifth something happened. And what they went back to find is that she had a traumatic birth and that the doctor diagnosed her with PTSD from the traumatic birth experience. Mm. And other women like that where there was something that was kind of life-threatening during the birth experience. Then it's over. You know, the baby came out fine. Mom's fine. Everyone thinks that's fine. But there's these reoccurring thoughts of death and of despair and of hopelessness. And that's the PTSD that we're talking about Mm -hmm. as well. And it kind of just, I guess, you, you sink into it. And then you probably get a lot of support around a baby for the first week or two and then that might be right when this is starting to fester and and kick in and everyone pulls away dad needs to go back to work Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you're left alone yeah how lonely Mm -hmm. and scary so some of this it may be also and i guess that's what they're checking to is a predisposition to depression if you already are predisposed to it you might be more likely to suffer an incident of depression. Yeah, and if they do this pre-screening with pregnant women, maybe we could target earlier what could happen and watch more close closely for these signs afterwards. I don't mm-hmm. think we're doing that as well as we could. Wow. Mm-hmm. This is something that for years, uh, I mean, we've been hearing about postpartum depression as a very real thing. But 50 years ago, they just thought you lost your mind. Yeah. And they put mm-hmm. you away or – 100, 200, 300, 400 years ago, you would just be 
seen as a witch mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or possessed by demons. Yeah. But like I was saying earlier before the show is that um, what's different in today's society is that we go in our own little homes, we close our doors and we have to mm-hmm. figure it out ourselves mm-hmm. and we think we're going crazy in our own minds because there's no support. But 100 years ago, 300 years ago, thousands of years ago, if someone suffered that, we had a community that all helped. We had wet nurses. We had families that were there. We had communities that would take over while the mom got better because we care- cared for ourselves mm-hmm. as a village. Now we don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. It's harder to reach out because we are individualized. Mm-hmm. I have to say one of the blessings for me was my mother-in-law lived nearby and I called her that first day. She came and stayed with me for over a week and would have stayed longer, but knew I was starting to do better. Um, I started medication pretty quickly because it was so severe mm-hmm. and I started to come out of it a little bit more. Um, the hard thing about it, some of that medicine mm-hmm. takes a month to get on board. Yeah, it's so, so th- true. You, so you have to give yeah. it time. You have to give it time or you have to dis- realize that's not the right medicine for mm-hmm. you and you have to change it. Man, plus mm-hmm. on top of all of this is – so there, you may have the PTSD because of the traumatic birth. But you also have this incredible love for a being or you should or you mm-hmm. sense you should – and you may not have that love or you may – that may induce fear because what if I now lose this thing I love so much and now it's – these little men are going to come take mm-hmm. it. I mean yep. that could create mm-hmm. some real And those fear. who have not been around um, – rearing children, perhaps they were an only child themselves and they have their mm-hmm. first child, they're overwhelmed with the responsibility mm. and the crushing weight of what do I do now? Am I going to make a mistake? And this whole being's life is in my hands. That could be very, very anxiety-ridden. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is – I don't care who you are. It's overwhelming. Mm-hmm. When they – I remember them strapping my baby in the car, letting us <laughs> leave the hospital. And in my, our first child, and I'm thinking – no, are you serious? Mm-hmm. We have no clue what we're doing. Mm-hmm. You're not and, sending me home with an instruction manual? Uh, I mean, is there not going to be someone that follows me home that tells no. me what to do uh-huh. all the right. time? This and, is it? You're just sending me home by yourself? And didn't sleep all night? Mm-hmm. It's oh. scary. Just that. I know. Itself. Just that itself is PTSD right there, <laughs> yeah. right? It, it's, it's sleep de- isn't It's sleep deprivation. It's yeah. how they train you. Um in, in the, the military. military. So it's the same thing. <laughs> that is so yeah. scary. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to continue the discussion. We'll take a break. More with Julie Nelson and Noreen Lemon talking today about uh, postpartum depression and psychosis, some of the latest studies, the research, and the real life experiences from a true blue mom that's made it through it. Uh, stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you find your way through life in the beautiful and the hard times as well. We'll be back. Friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we are talking about postpartum depression and psychosis with Julie K. Nelson, the bomb mom we call her, the child whisperer, and today she's brought along a friend. Noreen Lemon is joining us. They um, are talking today about getting through the postpartum blues are one thing. This is the postpartum purple, beat down, bruised, <laughs> ugly postpartum depression. It's a real thing. Apparently for about one in seven women suffered uh, postpartum depression. And you, Noreen, have gone through it, made it through it, Mm -hmm. and uh, you're here to educate us. 
Yeah, you. I have to say that I think that one of the things we can do because it's not necessarily being done is as women, um, sometimes we need to have that moment with someone that's just had a baby and take them aside. And every single one, no matter how happy they seem, say, I just want to know how you're really doing. Yeah. Maybe you're doing great. But I really need to know because I went through this or just say, I haven't gone through it, but I've heard that so many women go through this. I just want to make sure you're okay. Um, because this, I think the hardest thing was everybody being happy around me uh-huh. constantly. You can't just start crying in front no. of them. Um, they're also happy to see this baby who you don't really like and you're afraid you might hurt. Um, so I, you just need somebody need to, to ask. Yeah, exactly. Every, if everybody would ask every mom, then I think we could get somewhere. Oh, wouldn't that be great? And be mm-hmm. real with them. And like Noreen said, perhaps even say, instead of just saying, how are you doing? And they say, I'm fine. No, how are you really doing? No, I'm really fine. Say, you know, a lot of women suffer from, mm-hmm. because of sleep, sleep deprivation and overwhelmed with a new baby, they feel a little bit of despair. Perhaps they feel like they don't want to wake up when they, you know, they, they feel really overwhelmed. They feel isolated. Do you feel any of these things? And name some of the symptoms mm-hmm. and, and, and put a name to this. It's not just, do you feel depressed, but do you feel yeah. these things? Mm-hmm. And so do you ever feel like you just have a, like panicky or overwhelmed? And then the person might get this, they might in yeah. their eyes just, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it makes it okay to talk about it because mm-hmm. you've said the words. Because then, then you can start the discussion. Mm-hmm. And I think like we mentioned that I, for the first six weeks, because you don't see a doctor for six weeks after, that they should have in the mental health or the nurse to yeah. the OB mm-hmm. calling once a week to new moms and saying, let's go through a mental health assessment. How are you doing with all mm-hmm. of these different symptoms and have the, the be like a weekly check-in until they see the doctor? Because in that six weeks, most women, that's when they find yes. the worst happening. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting because you also – women also have other chemicals in, on board, oxytocin, positive chemicals. So they also feel good. At times. But yeah. – mm-hmm. And, and then everyone's saying everyone's so positive and there's so much love and joy. But there's the real side of I'm lonely. Mm-hmm. I, I'm in despair and I don't dare bring it up because that makes me seem like I'm less of a mother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And two things I've also researched. And one is that um, the lifestyle is so dramatic. So many women are working. They're productive. They're you know power, having power and, and all kinds of acclaim in their workplace. And now they're home and nobody's applauding. Mm-hmm. They have no idea what they're doing. A complete 180 with lifestyle. And that in itself can make anyone go a tail, do a mm-hmm. tailspin. I'm not earning money. I'm home with this baby, no conversation. Another thing is, in rare cases, but it does happen, is just breastfeeding, which should release the, mm-hmm. the happy oxytocin, oxytocin, can also uh, bring on. Um, Interesting so, depression. So, yeah. Because you're already a chemical basket case. And then I, I heard something like it takes five or six years for a woman to replace her chemistry anyway after mm. a baby. But some women have had three babies in a row. Yeah. So their chemicals are depleting, depleting, mm-hmm. depleting. And they never rebounded. They right. never. Yeah. So um, one thing we want to talk about, and Noreen can bring in some insights as well, is that once she got help, um, she got better. Mm-hmm. But many women can get help. 
Um, like one mm-hmm. that Emily Dykes I mentioned, who on her fifth child she um, ended up dying, um, walking onto a freeway, and and uh, had a truck hit her just recently. Um, they set up the Emily Effect Foundation. Mm-hmm. So if anyone needs help, look up the emilyeffect.org or dot dot com. Um, but she and others have found that once they got help, they felt like they were getting better. They felt better, and then mm-hmm. it, re- it was a reoccurrence, mm-hmm. and it came back again and again. So what do you do, Noreen, when when you mm-hmm. think you're okay, then people leave you alone because now she's better, mm-hmm. but it can recur. I think, you know, self-awareness um, of yourself, like I'm not getting as much sleep. I'm starting to feel that panicky feeling again. Uh, and people around you being aware. I think you also need to be aware that just because you did fine on three kids doesn't mean the fourth is going to be a right. breeze. Um, it can always trigger something inside of you. And for me, I, I went through that, but then I did have reoccurrences, not necessarily postpartum, but I would have reoccurrences and I was very aware because I could feel it. Mm-hmm. But there's so many women that think, well, there, obviously, I can't be fixed. Obviously, there's nothing that can be done. Um, this is just the way it is. So I think we just really need to be great friends and family members and be aware and be kind of invasive yeah. when it comes to mental health with those around us. Because they've got depression. They're mm-hmm. not necessarily going to self-correct. No, they and even if they do right. for a while, like even if they're doing great for a while, that doesn't mean it's over. Um, so if you notice things, if you if you just go ahead and assume yeah. <laughs> and go ahead and ask. Be invasive. Like yeah, exactly. You say. Ask the questions. Mm-hmm. What can I do as a spouse? So what is the husband to do? I guess he, too, could be invasive and make sure mm-hmm. that we're doing OK mentally. Pick up the game more. I mean, there's always sometimes that battle of you've got the equipment, but I've got the will. And mm-hmm. so my, what do my I do? husband was absolutely amazing. And I had the greatest support system. So the ladies that don't, um, I can't even imagine. Mm. Um, but he was he was my hero during that time. Um, but one of the things that helped me the most was to think sometimes, ladies, you need to think I'm not getting help for me. I'm getting help for my husband. I'm getting help for my children. Um, The trauma that is caused by a parent that has a mental illness, even through postpartum and doesn't get help, it is life. It it can last forever Mm. with those kids. And so I say, if you think I'm not going to get help because I can do it, um, think about your kids and think about your husband. And it's a gift to them that you get help and you do something about it. Yeah, that's a big and deal. And recognize the early signs before mm-hmm. it gets so tailspinning that you can't do anything more and you're in that exactly. black hole. Exactly. And then as a spouse, you know you should know your spouse well enough that if they start to act or mm-hmm. look, feel weird, um, if, you have, if you're not married and you have a friend who uh, you know them well, yes. then you should be able to know by their voice, like you mentioned mm-hmm. before, yes. that you can hear in their voice something's different. And, and just ask. Get do help something. right away. Yeah, yeah, do something then. Don't wait. And for those of us who are alone, perhaps single parents or for someone um, that just needs to get help, the the three um, places that I would love to refer you to is that um, the emilyeffect.org, it's org, and then there's preventingsuicide.lds.org. And then if anyone, anywhere, is a national hotline, can call the suicide hotline. If you have any of those thoughts, then call 800-273-TALK or 800-273-8255. What, again, are the signs? 
the early signs. Well, Noreen, tell us a little bit more because you you really did go through this. I really think so much of if you're lacking sleep, even when you can sleep, that you can't get to sleep. That's a pretty quick sign that your mind can't shut down. Um, Feeling just exhausted, overwhelmed. I have to change a diaper. I think I'm going to die. I'm never going to be able to change this diaper. So overwhelmed for over things that aren't shouldn't necessarily be overwhelming. Um, Those would usually be signs of it. Um, And it doesn't even have to be that extreme, just sheer exhaustion Mm -hmm. where you can't get yourself up. um, That alone is enough to say, I probably need some help. And and immediately, and, and I guess anticipated, if you are a person who who might already have experienced depression, even anxieties mm-hmm. probably, mm-hmm. then anticipate you probably could have a problem. Yeah, because those are yeah. early signs. And if you mm-hmm. don't treat the early signs, then you start getting the black thoughts. Yeah. yeah. Then mm-hmm. you are um, d- definitely going to hurt yourself or you're going to die or your baby's going to die. Mm-hmm. And then you get into psychosis. Yeah. And that's where nothing is reality anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. And such a real thing. And one in seven. Mm-hmm. Don't mess with it. Mm-mm. It's already hard enough. Mm-hmm. Somebody's got to raise this child. Yes. <laughs> oh, well, well done. Appreciate you, Noreen. Thanks for Thank giving us insight into your experience. Thank you so much. It's a big deal. And again, Julie, you're the bomb. Thanks. Thanks the so bomb much, Matt. mom. Find out more about Julie at her website, a spoonful of parenting.com. We'll take a break, come back, wrap up the third hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, today uh, has been a great day. We have learned so many things. And uh, as we wrap up the show, um, we we learned about why young Americans are being turned off by politics. It's, you know, it's not just Trump and Hillary Clinton. It's a big problem of simply it's not as attractive as it used to be. Only, uh, I mean, a tiny percentage of people, 90% of youth and young adults said they'd ever want to be involved in politics. Problem. You got to fix that. We also learned uh, about the importance of um, maybe the youth needing a hobby that's healthier than licking bats. Last time I checked, man, this is a free country, so I should be able to lick whatever I want, you know? It's like my prerogative, my Fifth Amendment rights or whatever, but if I want to lick a bat, then I can do that. If I want to lick a hat or a mat or a gnat or a splat, you know, I can do that because this is America. You're You're sick. sick. We're We're ticked. We don't want any bad licks. If we moan, we groan. You'll leave the poor bats alone. Hey, Bob. You slob. Stop what you're doing and get a job. That is the association um, against bat licking. They're, very, they're a pro-bat association. Fighting back. They're sick. They're ticked. Something. They don't. No, more bat They licks. don't want any bat licks. Yeah. I don't know what's happening to the youth. It used to be we just wanted to, you know, go on a date. Well, your guest earlier said that they were, what, 
fruit of fruitivores or something like that. Fruit, fruit of the loom Frugivores. Yeah. And so maybe they've got like a fruity taste to them. That's kind it. Maybe, there's, maybe they've got a little fructose covering. It's like uh, Willy Wonka's uh, lickable wallpaper. Remember that? Yeah. Um, I think it was more like a fraternity prank. These guys went and their goal was to lick a bat. And then they took pictures of it. And then they posted it on Facebook. And they also wrote their names on the wall of the cave. And then the, they got arrested. How many licks does it take to get to the fruity center of a bat? One, a two, three. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Owl. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, so we learned about bat lickers. We also learned about the guy that cut his tree down just because, you know, he could. I am the smart. S-M-R-T. I mean, S-M-A-R-T. And then Homie, of course. And then we also just to wrap up the show, just learned about the impact of postpartum depression, which is great for you, Terry, because you're about to have a child come into this world in the next few weeks. But you're saying that I'm going to suffer from it. You will. Your wife's she'll be she'll be fine. Is it like sympathy Postpartum depression? Or? I don't know that you'll have sympathy postpartum. Because you've heard about sympathy pregnancy yeah, pains. Right, right, right. I think you're going to suffer because you you won't be able to be here with us. Yours is more of just estrangement. From here? Yeah. Your hmm. sadness. Will, I mean, you'll lose the power source that you have right now. You have a lot of power here. Really? Yeah. Okay. You run the lives of six, seven producers. For a few hours a day, yeah. Um, yeah. So I just feel like you're going to. We'll see. We'll see. But I, the cool thing is you did get your Wi-Fi working. I did. I fixed the Wi-Fi at my house finally. I, I noticed you had to wait till you were going to be home for a week when a baby was coming before you actually fixed the Wi-Fi. It just sort of worked that way, but it's going to be awesome. We'll just leave it at that. It's going to be fantastic. If you want Wi-Fi, it needs to work. Mm-hmm. When it doesn't work. It's a problem. Hey, we got uh, we got a great story that we got to get to about – well, I mean great, I guess. It's, it's kind of the one in the million shot. Like every once in a while, a baseball player hits that ball. Speaking of bats. Yeah. Spe- speaking of bat lickers, uh, a minor league baseball player in southern Illinois hit a grand slam home run, and, uh, which is so hard. A grand salami home run. And that ball flew into the outfield and hit a car and broke the windshield. The amazing thing, guess whose car it was? The hitters. Oh. He broke his own windshield. Here's the play-by-play. That ball hit high and deep. Stretch. At the wall. He looks up. You can put it on the board. Yes. 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 Oops. That no! was no! And then the guy, this was the Gateway Grizzlies of Saget, Sajay, is that how you say it? Sajay, Illinois. Saginaw? No. Is it Saginaw? It's not Saginaw. It's Sajay. Sajay. Illinois says Brandon Thomas hit a homer during Sunday's game against Joliet Slammers. The 25-year-old outfielder sent the ball sailing into the parking lot where his 2008 black Toyota Tundra was parked. Yes. Thomas says he didn't even realize what happened until players in the dugout were laughing. (laughs) 
Leave it to your team player, your team members to to uh, make fun of you after you just hit the I, grand salon. I think a local advertiser helped him with a new windshield. Yeah. I think that's how the story ends. Plus, ended. we'll take care of your chips. Yeah. He should get a lifetime supply of the Grand Slammers at Denny's. Is it Grand Slammers? The Grand Slam. Grand Slam. The Grand Slam breakfast. That's not a great point. And by the way, we also like to end with a hero story. And our hero today is a New Jersey woman who is uh, using coupons to feed 30,000 people in need. 29-year-old Lauren Perrier realized that couponing could uh, benefit a lot of people, not just her family. So she put together a goal that by her 30th birthday, she wanted to have 30,000 meals prepared uh, for um, those that needed them. And she's a resident who is a mental health clinician and is also uh, following the lead of her mother, her grandmother, by uh, being a part of the in- and understanding the importance of helping others. So per year is going to use her coupon clipping to get a lot of free food, a lot of offers. You've seen all the couponing shows this woman now has realized that for just 20 bucks, she can feed 150 people if you use coupons, right? So she's doing it. So she's now the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show, 29-year-old Lauren Perrier. If you're in New Jersey, look her up. See if there's some way you could help her maybe provide a little of the money to buy the food. If not, she's just going to coupon her way into the hearts and the stomachs of many. That's the show, my friends. We'll be back tomorrow to give you more ideas, more information to live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. Remember, life is good, but you have to go look for the good. And when you see it, you can also participate in being part of it. That's the show. Until tomorrow, make it a great one. We'll talk again tomorrow.